General Patton has said that wars are fought with weapons, but they are won by men. We are going to win this war because we have the best men. Our goal is to create the best army in history. But every army starts with one man. He will be the first in a new breed of super soldiers. Did Soviet scientists try to cross apes and humans to create an army of ape men? Stalin was willing to do things that other people would cringe from doing. Who are you supposed to be? Captain America. back to the Nazis, well, they believe that they can create godmen or super soldiers, but they call it the master race. Vladimir Putin has come out and warned of a future sci-fi superhuman soldiers more destructive than nuclear bombs who feel no fear or pain. Oh yeah, we all at gut level and historically know this has all happened before. And with the help of the country's finest scientists, was transformed into the world's first super soldier. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome all of you awesome super duper listeners back. You are the superest and the duperest and we love you best of all. You, like, deserve your own line of lunch boxes and maybe thermoses, and your face should be on Wheaties boxes, and you could probably start a super team if you really wanted to. Howling podcasters. I'm regretting our name. <laughs> we do want to welcome all of you back. We want to remind you that you can check out our website at justastorypod.com to find links to all of our sources and further information about things we talk about on the episodes. Uh, you can also check out some of Sam's fun, cool, super-duper artwork. It's super-duper, too. Everything's super-duper. Everything's super today. Get on board. Get on board. That's exactly what I was going to say. You read my mind. You must be a su- You must be super. Super psychic. On our website, you can find a link to our merchandise store, and that's where you can buy some of that super-duper artwork on super-duper soft t-shirts, or on mugs, or other paraphernalia. Why does that word always make me think of drugs now? Because you're on pot. <laughs> I'm not going out to look for America. You take that back. <laughs> you can also check out links to our Patreon page where you can get extra episodes and help support the show. And now there's one more way you can get in touch with us besides social media, such as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And that is the Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. And you can reach the Urban Legend Hotline by dialing 512 512- Two 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 three three seven five. And once you have reached the Urban Legend hotline, you may leave a message at the beep. Remember answering machines? It works like that, but it's voicemail. And on said answering machine slash voicemail, 
you can tell us all about your favorite scary stories, campfire tales, pirate yarns, sing-alongs, chain letters, slash UFO abductions, whatever you're in the mood for. We'd love to hear it all. You know, now I regret that we don't have like a tape answer machine where we'd have like a little red blinky light <laughs> when we came in the door. Maybe one day. One day. Don't stop believing. One day we could hit up the pawn shop and find one. Maybe Goodwill. We're also going to need like a phone in our house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but dear listeners, back to the story at hand. Stories today. So many stories. So many stories because we're talking about super soldiers. Tale as old as time. Is it romantic? Oh, wait, it is. We do have some romance in this episode, we don't do worry. a smidge. True as it can be, both a little scared, neither Socially one prepared. Impaired. What? <laughs> beauty and the Beast, actually. We're going to have a Beauty and the Beast thing. So, Sam, what do you think of when you think of super soldiers? Cap! Cap! Cap. Obviously, I have to. I'm required to by law. Coming from comic world... Captain America is the only logical first thought one might have about the word super soldier. For you, of course. <laughs> ah, I said, coming from comic world. But yeah, Captain America, he is the all-American star-spangled superhero made out of a soldier. He's a super soldier. He is literally a super soldier. He was originally created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Jack King Kirby. The King. The King. The King Kirby. And Captain America number one was published in 1940 by Timely Comics. It was timely. Later to be Marvel. So, in case you haven't seen the movie, I read the comic. What movie? (laughs) Only the highest grossing movie ever, Mm -hmm. Avengers. But, of course, the Captain America movie. The first Avenger. The first Avenger. Was the subtitle. Well, we start out with Steve Rogers. And Steve Mm -hmm. Rogers is an unremarkable specimen. He is... A weakling. Hundred nothing. Hundred nothing. Five, five foot, foot nothing. nothing. It's a whole thing. But he is a patriotic, red-blooded American male, which does not mean he assaults women. No, no. It means he wants to go sign up for the army. And do good. And do good. That's what that used to mean. It did. It still does. In my heart. <laughs> so he's like, from Brooklyn, he has buddies who are enlisting, and he repeatedly tries to enlist in the United States Armed Forces But he is too puny even for Uncle Sam. And so he is continuously rejected. But he has chutzpah. And so when they unveil the top secret super soldier serum project and they need a candidate to go and get injected with super soldier serum, Steve Rogers is the logical choice because they want to give you as many S's as possible. So we are almost at she sells seashells territory <laughs> and don't forget the vita rays what are vita rays vita rays he gets bombarded by vita rays are those like vitamins they're vita rays got it this is 1940 i'm on board you know so this comic was published by timely in 1940 which is psychic is which is before pearl harbor so were they criticized for being overly prescient well so you know they've got Issue number one, they have Captain America famously punching Hitler in the face. And if that's not a way to start a comic. Right hook of America. But we were not yet at war with Adolf Hitler. We were not. And it's so interesting because they put Hitler on the cover. They put this superhero soldier 
into a real life situation that's going on. Overly timely, everyone yeah, said. Yeah, he wasn't created by a mad scientist or a, some freak lab accident or a wizard or a lab experiment. Or a spider. Any of those things. He chose to be Captain America and to use his newfound powers for truth, justice, and the American way. Wait, no. He did. Well, he did, but that's not his slogan. Fine. But at this time, there was much consternation about the U.S. entering World War II. Right, because we were liking this whole isolationist thing we had going, and Charles Lindbergh said we shouldn't be at war, so we were like, he seems to know. Yeah, we're America first. We talked about that in our James Bond episode. So Kirby and Simon got lots of hate letters, hate mail, phone calls. Mary LaGuardia offered security. Oh, my God. That's as the story goes, of course. He one, probably did. I mean, he, he had he had people doing you know, stuff. Now, one story that Jack Kirby would always tell was that he was in the timely office, and a call came in from someone in the lobby. When Kirby answered, the caller threatened him with bodily harm if he ever showed his face. You know what Kirby told the caller? I know it would be the coolest thing he could tell the caller. What? See you in a minute. Be right down. <laughs> But by the time Jack reached street level, there was no one to be found. So Captain America soon became Timely's most popular character, had a fan club called the Sentinels of Liberty, and circulation figures remained close to a million copies per month after the debut issue. So when you begin by punching Hitler, everyone's on your side? Is that what you're telling me? No, the Nazis didn't like him. (laughs) The American Bund, German-American Bund, excuse me, Bund. I don't know how you say that. So, Simon and Kirby would complete the first 10 issues of Captain America before a dispute over profits, and they left for National Comics. Which became DC. Which became DC Comics. Detective Comics. Of course. So, in 1943, both men put their comics where their mouth was and were drafted into the military. I think you mean put their money where their comics were. Yeah, whatever. So, Simon was in the Coast Guard. And he actually wrote comic books for their public relations unit. Now, Kirby ended up in the U.S. Army. He landed on Omaha Beach three months after D-Day and saw serious combat. Now, he was Jewish. His real name was Jacob Kurtzberg. And since he understood Yiddish and the Jewish-German dialect spoken by his family, and since he was a comic book artist, he was sent ahead behind enemy lines as a scout to draw maps. He was a spy. (laughs) Now, of course, they both returned home safely from the war and went on to create lots of important, if you can call it that, comic work. You can call comics important. I am. I am. But Cap, sadly, did not return from the war. He lost popularity. No one cared about the Star-Spangled Avenger anymore. It wasn't an Avenger yet. And he kind of went into the big pile of Golden Age superheroes that were supposedly never to be seen again. Ah, uh, but. Ah, uh, well. In the 50s, they tried to revive him. What were we fighting in the 50s? Uh, commies. Everyone knows commies are invisible. He was Captain America, commie smasher. Yeah, I don't like the name. Yeah, it did terrible. Okay. <laughs> but in 1964, Stan Lee. I'm familiar. We all know him. I um, love him. Crazy old man. Retconned <laughs> things that he was frozen in a block of ice. The end of World War II, just like in the movies, and they thought him out, and he became part of the Avengers. 
But that set up something very unique about Cap's character. It made him an outsider it by did. necessity. Yeah. So one of the reasons that Marvel was so successful and why it's still more successful of the movie branches is because they brought their characters into like more real life situations. But it's it, not real life. Well, they thought like it was like a soap opera kind of thing. They wanted to deal with their emotions and their right. struggles. They just made them three dimensional. Yeah, but that had never been really right. done and relatable. on a great scale. So Cap has this like Freddie Mercury who wants to live forever struggle that really defines his character throughout even today. Oh, he's a man out of time. He is dealing with coming into these new 60s stuff going on. You got Vietnam changing social attitudes, all things that he does not Women's understand. Women's civil rights, all oh. of the things. So we get to see a man from World War II era try to assimilate into this radically changing, constantly shifting new America. And it gives us a very interesting narrative because it does always seem that this greatest generation of people, the men and women that were involved in defending America during World War II, exist in a vacuum and that everything changes after that. Like right after that, suddenly, boom. It seems like it's the 60s in history. Right. There's the whole Red Scare. And that's about it <laughs> in the history because that's what you learn about in class. In high school, absolutely. But it gives us a place for this like patriotic veteran, this guy from the good old days, this embodiment of the way America's really supposed to be. And his stamp of approval or his ability to shift his attitudes kind of legitimizes the social change and integrates it into being part of the larger American narrative. Right, it's the like character that we have now but it's interesting that he came back you know as a soldier character he tried to come back when there wasn't an enemy to fight and he didn't of course have the kind of right writers and ideas behind him then he didn't stick until he was put in the context of a larger team and put in the context of being a relic yes him being a relic is part of the story and so he has like this totemic value like he's sort of this this thing we can all look at and say, wasn't America lovely? Gee, aren't we nice? Weren't things grand back when we were fighting to a war on two fronts? With obvious evil. Right. Obvious bad guys. That's why the Nazis are always cast the bad guys. Because they're so obviously evil. There's no gray there. <laughs> Except on the SS uniforms. <laughs> but this is not usually how the super soldier narrative runs in urban legends. Like, it's like Cap yeah. has this really special place where we look back at him and we're like, he's this time capsule of patriotism in the good old days. But most of the time when you hear these stories, these rumors about super soldiers, it's almost always this mysterious other, this thing over there that's a little bit more powerful than you and makes the men and women going to war so much more brave because they're confronting these superhumans. Right, and you can think of so many different historical kind of mythical, like we can consider super soldiers. They had, they were too good. They were beyond what any normal man could do. You can think of so many different ancient, mythical, super, almost super powered warriors as their stories have come across. You can think of the Zulu or the Azandi fighters, ninjas. Ninjas are... Samurai. Oh my gosh, yes. The even... The Apache. So many stories. Yeah, but it's kind of true. Ah, some of it's true. 
that's an episode. The Maori. And a lot of times the images of fierceness were projected onto them by those that were afraid to confront them. And maybe one of the most literally legendary groups of fierce warriors in history are the assassins. Assassins. The assassins. Like Assassin's Creed. So one of our earliest accounts in Western writing of the assassins comes from one Marco. Polo. Marco. Polo. Marco Polo reported having traveled to an area controlled by the Ismailis, and he calls them the Ashishin. And he relates this tale about the way that the old man of the mountain, who is a legendary leader of this set, trained his young warriors. According to Polo, the old man had constructed this fabulous garden with runnels flowing with wine and milk and honey, and it was full of lovely damsels for the enjoyment of the garden's guest. The old man would drug a prospective assassin with a mysterious potion, and he would have the young man brought into the garden while he was asleep. And when the young man would awaken, he would believe himself to be in paradise. And at that time, the old man would drug him again and have him removed from the garden. And this young initiate would be so moved by the experience and so anxious to return to this garden of pleasure that he would obey the old man very loyally and follow his commands to assassinate his enemies. So to get this like elite force of fighters loyalty, he would drug them, show them and a pretty garden, them. basically. Yes. Cool. Is this real? Does this happen? This may shock you. What? There's much debate about this. No. So most medieval and modern commentators attribute the idea that drugs and brainwashing play a part in this particular sex title, Assassins. And they attribute the origin of this to a, a passel of early medieval accounts. So they're a very small minority within the Shia Muslim community. And they have a very fearsome reputation because they're called the, the assassins. That assassins? The assassins. This is where the word comes from. People say, yes. <laughs> People say. People do say that, yes. There are lots of historians who for hundreds of years have believed that this group, the Ismailis, retain their position of power by assassinating rival leaders. And that the individual assassins were either intoxicated with hashish or they were anxious to receive their reward of hashish so they would take part in these very dangerous missions in order to get this reward. It was like this super-powered, potent, potable. Which hashish is a byproduct of marijuana. It's the resin. Yes. Now this was used for years to justify the legal prohibition of marijuana. Really? Yes. So in 1937, the story was told to Congress. Really? And they were showing this link between marijuana and violent behavior. It was in a 1937 marijuana tax debate, and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics Commissioner, Angslinger, told the House that the substance could lead to, quote, a delirious rage after its administration. There's been fake news in Congress forever. Forever! <laughs> so in 1950. Five, the World Health Organization 
said that under the influence of cannabis, the danger of committing an unpremeditated murder is very great. It can happen in cold blood, without any reason or motive, unexpectedly, without any preceding quarrel. Often the murderer does not even know the victim and kills simply for pleasure. Ban it. And so... No more marijuana. This all hinges on the idea that the word assassin derives from the word hashishan, which is... From a centuries-old Islamic sect. Right, but the drug that they used was yes. hashish. So hashish, hashishan, assassin, marijuana makes you murder people. I knew it. Do you see the math here? I mean, it's just math. I see math. I mean, it's a correct. <laughs> I see the it, math. Yeah. You can follow that train all the way off the tracks. <laughs> so according to this field of, of marijuana violence study... This hinges on the idea that the Ismailis were known as Hashishan. And this is true. They They were were known as Hashishan. Okay. Now, there are various spellings and presentations of the word in Western accounts of them, and they can vary quite a lot. Uh, There's Hesessini, there is Asasini, there is Ashinshan. It varies a lot, but it's kind of all similar enough. But they're not getting this from written sources, right? Like the Westerners who are recording their own accounts of these people are not consulting one text written in the language they can read and taking down the notes. Like it seems like it is being told to them and they're writing it down because there's such wide variance. So we're starting with oral transmission, which is a great way to verify things, you know? Of an isolated group. Right. Speaking to random Western Guys walking through. Right. And it's not <laughs> like they're going up and interviewing the Hashishan. They are interviewing... People about the people Hashishan. about them. There are several possibilities. Like, they were called Hashishan. Where did it derive from? Was it Hashish? Is that really true? There's some other theories. For example, there's an Arabic noun, Hassas, which is used in Syria and parts of Lower Egypt. And it means, like, a thief in the night. Well, that makes sense. Or one who sets an ambush. Okay. And it's derived from the root hasa, which means to kill or exterminate. So that that all tracks. That seems to fit. Sure. That sounds like solid etymology. Right. But it's half the fun of it. Right. We've, we've only got the killing people thing. We need the drugging and killing people thing. That's way more fun. Oh, definitely. It's more fun with marijuana, Jake. Always. So when do we get the drugs? Very important. Where are the drugs? Where are the drugs? Well, they really come from one fellow named Silvestri de Sacchi. And he's credited by most modern scholars as having established this etymological link between hashish and assassin. And he was one of those early Arabic or Eastern scholars, Orientalist, as they were called Mm. at the time. So, I mean, did they use hashish? Well, there's conflicting evidence, but de Sacchi does a pretty good job of... Citing his sources. So, cool. Okay. I'm a fan. He discusses two texts in his work which do seem to support this assumption that they use hashish. And one involves a reference to the sectaries as the keepers of the hashisha. And another Arabic text details the introduction of hashish into Egypt by a Persian Ismaili. Okay. So, he so does have some good. historical evidence like on it. his side. But then you get to this idea that it was this precious 
secret and principal source of power. That's what he writes about it. Like it is, it's the key to basically everything in the universe. I guess if they were like a drug cartel. (laughs) Doesn't seem they were. But that seems to be incorrect. It's this drug that was pretty widely available and well known in this area. This like Persia slash Egypt. Middle East. Yeah, the Middle East is pretty well known. And people were pretty familiar with its effects. It's not like they, it was only used by the elite or there was no discussion of it. It was... So you can get a dime bag down at the market. I don't know if they had dimes. Or Ziploc bags. <laughs> but... What you're telling me is that the genie was all a hallucination from this hashish. The Robin Williams one? Yeah. That's true. Yeah, it's gotta be. That that only explanation. That one in particular, yes. And it seems unlikely that it was this thing that everybody kind of knew about, that it would be magical and impressive enough to motivate people to commit murder of pretty prominent citizens. Right, and to be like completely 100% loyal to somebody just because they gave you a pot brownie. I mean, how good was it, right? (laughs) There's the question. So the most likely thing is that it is kind of like a misnomer, that it's not something that stemmed from the practices that they took part in, but more like a judgment call by Orthodox Islamic society. So the other sects. The other sects looked at them and were like, you cray. And... So in order to explain this, I'm going to explain something else real quick, and you'll see how it works. So the word lunatic. Yes. What does it mean? to Luna. Right. Moon. Right. Feelings that the moon was associated with madness. Right. So you're of the moon. It means of the moon. Why are they of the moon, you would say, if you ran across this word? Why are crazy people of the moon? If you didn't know the backstory. Right. It would make no sense. It would make no sense. Like, and you'd are these be people like, from the moon? Do they worship the moon? Like, what's going on with the moon? So in that same way, we come to this kind of pejorative that was created to describe this small minority sect, which was Hashishan. The word Hashishan began to be used for mad. Oh, interesting. It became like a slang term. Now, knowing that this is like a slang term for crazy, is it going to be written down by scholars in the Islamic world? Because it's slang. It's slang. Is it going to be written down by Westerners who hear it? Uh, definitely. Because they don't know it's slang. Well, everyone knows that Marco Polo's writings were 100% truthful. <laughs> Especially the mermaid stuff. All of it. So it was a commentary on their conduct, on the way that they acted, on the way that they were perceived. It was a pejorative. It was something that was said about them. It was not a report from an insider. But Marco Polo's talking about drugs. Drugs are fun. No, they're not. Don't do drugs. Don't do drugs, kids. Just say no. Nancy would tell you. Well, Nancy, back to Marco Polo. So, in all likelihood, he was recording a folk tale because there was a popular legend in the Arabic world and throughout China, which he has duplicated almost verbatim in his accounts. Really? This is crazy. Right. Or this is Hashishan. (laughs) And it was fixed upon several different sects and tribes throughout the region. Kind of like whoever they were fighting at the moment. Of course, whoever they didn't like. Mm-hmm. Eventually, around the time that Polo was traveling, there were people that went to Alamut, which was their fortress, their stronghold, the sex stronghold. Where the magic garden was? There was no magic garden, nor were there the remains of any magic garden, nor were there any hints at the magic garden. It seems that that was completely fabricated out of whole cloth. 
See the mermaid episode. <laughs> Buzzkill. Yeah, literally. So that indicates that there were not any people like left hanging out there. It was completely destroyed, and there was like no way that Polo would have come across any of the OG Ishmaelis like hanging out, smoking hashish, plotting assassinations. This is secondhand, and that is probably the truth of it. So where do they get tied with the drug hashish? There are those two accounts, the Sakte sites. And he is really responsible for hammering that home. Popularizing it. But where most people encountered it was in Edward Fitzgerald's introduction to the English rendition of Umar Khayyam's quatrains, or the the Rubiat of Umar Khayyam, which you'll be familiar with if you follow, like, any of those people washed up on the beach mysteries. Is that in the dude's pocket? The 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 Talmud should. The Talmud should. That dude. Um, oh, I bet he was on some hashish. Bet he was too. <laughs> Explains everything. We've solved it. Where's our reward, Australia? If there's not a platypus on my front porch by morning, or at least an egg, we are not friends anymore. <laughs> anyway, so it begins with the tale of the three schoolfellows. So in this tale, there's the Persian poet astronomer Umar Khayyam, and he's linked with Suljuk Vizier, Nizam al Muk, and Hassan Saba the founder of the so-called Order of the Assassins. Now, the three famous Persian protagonists were allegedly classmates when they were young. Now, they all promised one another that whoever reached a successful point in their life first would look after his crew, and he would help them establish their own careers. Nazem al-Muk attained rank and power first and became the vizier to the Seljuk Sultan and kept his vow, offering Kayem a regular stipend, and giving Hassan a high post. However... Game of Thrones stuff. Game of Thrones ensues, mm. and Hassan soon becomes a rival. And he disgraces Hassan before the sultan, and he vows to take revenge. Leaves for Egypt, goes and learns the secrets of the Ismaili faith. Oh, got a few seeds. Yes. And later returns to Persia, and t- founds the sect that terrorizes the Seljuks through assassinations. Now, Nazim al-Mulk became the first victim of Hassan's assassins. And so this becomes one of the Eastern legends that is connected with the Naziri Ismailis in medieval Europe. And this is where they become the assassins. assassins. This is where it happens. And then through trying to figure out why they're called this, we get the hashish connection. Oh. By trying to do etymology on assassin in order to figure out why they're called this and where the word comes from. Interesting. It's just a big cycle. (laughs) It is a big cycle. So it is an old, old legend, and it goes back to the early, early 12th century, where there's really the first major sustained contact between any Europeans and the Shia Muslim community. Crusades. The Crusades, (laughs) yes. Kindly went down and asked if they could please have the Holy Land. We would like to liberate it. Please. Oh, you're going to kill all of us. Never mind. We'll come back in a few years. And again and again and again. And then we'll send the kids because fun. (laughs) Ah, Children's Crusade. One day. One day. Now, at this time, the Naziri Ismailis had just been founded under the leadership of Hassan Sabah. And they had a special territorial state. They actually had geographical, political property at this moment in time. Right. 
Now, they were challenging the hegemony of the Seljuk Turks in the Muslim lands, and there was much animosity. Now, throughout all of this crusading, all of this intersect fighting, a very complex web of alliances between various Islamic and Christian sects takes hold and shifts and changes and people are mixing and getting stories and getting information from all kinds of very reliable narrators. So they are sitting around the campfire at night Mm -hmm. with their new allies Mm -hmm. and they're swapping stories Mm -hmm. and we're smoking on hashish. Maybe. And they hear these stories about the assassins. Yeah. So the Crusaders really do serve as mouthpieces for this story. Like they transmit it to Europe 100%. And so that's how old the legend of the assassins is. Now they're super drug later, but the assassins early 12th century in Europe. Now they do already at this time have the old man of the mountain as that key figure who is later doling out hashish and taking the magical mystery gardens. But you have to remember that they are blank slates when it comes to this foreign culture over there. We know nothing of it. All we know is they're the enemy. And so we believe it. Definitely believe it. And it must be true. And so the stories are very popular when they come back, too, because, you know, they're highly inflammatory. And these legends really are rooted in this generalized hostility towards the Islamic world in the Western world, in the Christian world, and the Islamic dislike of this sect but the stories were taken very seriously by various serious scholars throughout history and so we did not get to know these people very well until very recently so the ismailis still around they exist in pockets they're spread around they're not a geopolitical entity anymore it's a sectarian division and there are a very small minority of the Shia Muslim world. And they were founded in 1094, and they broke into two branches, the Nazaris and the Mustalians. And they founded a state in Persia with a subsidiary in Syria. And their main fortress was Alamut, which was in Persia, and it was the center of their state. Now, they were surrounded by people that did not like them. Always a great place for a state. And the area where their state was was surrounded by the anti-Shia Sunni Turks. This was not going well for them. Bad choice of life. It was a bad <laughs> choice. And so they're founded in 1094, 1096. Crusades. Crusades. And then in 1256, so not that long after in the grand scheme of history. But a long time But a long after. time after, the Mongols uh, got them. Got them. Got them. Got them. Got them. And their state was destroyed. Their belief system survived, but their their state was gone. Okay, so they're small little kind of cultural pockets. Yes. So within the Muslim community, there were these very disparaging accounts of the sect, kind of tearing apart like the motives, beliefs, practices, and origins of this small sect. And some of this was due to honest intellectual confusion of this group with other groups. It's people who kind of thought they had a grasp on it, trying to get the details down on, you know, in a permanent way, but not having enough firsthand knowledge. But some of it was due to like these intentional defamation campaigns. And there was a, a black legend that was put forth by people who disliked them. 
and it portrayed them as this very dubious group. And they had the secret graded initiation. And the rites led to irreligiosity and nihilism. And the most common feature of these anti-Ismaili polemics was this idea that they were kind of slippery slope into believing in nothing. Um, on the way to atheism. Yes. And that they were actually portrayed as kind of having been established to destroy Islam from within. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's understandable. Yeah. So they felt like they were like the absolute scourge of the earth. Well, yeah, that that was at the time. There were people writing things that would encourage someone to have that opinion. Yeah. Um, they also questioned like the legitimacy of their line and their connections to the Prophet Muhammad. Mm, okay. uh, they said they're lying about that and they're wrong and they're evil. Like they just they just did not like them. <laughs> and so there you have these very negative attitudes floating about in the ether. And so they're very willing to talk trash. And then you have this folk tale about this this magic drug and the gardens and the old man and the crazy enemy assassin people floating. And then you have completely ignorant Westerners stepping into all of it and getting both stories. Like, cool story, bro. Mixing it up, you know, put it down, flip it, interverse it, bring it back to wherever they're from in Europe and tell all your friends. So it's very well established. And it's established by multiple sources in bits and pieces. And then you have the fact that this sect is highly secretive. Oh, so they're not telling anybody what they're doing. No, they guarded their literature and refused to divulge their doctrines to any outsiders, which may have been pretty well justified because in the Middle Ages, they were a very severely persecuted community within the Muslim world. And there were massacres in many localities, and they were obliged from the very inception of their existence to adhere to the Shia principle of takia, a precautionary dissimulation of one's true religious belief in the face of danger. They would misrepresent or mm. hide or obscure. Purposefully. Purposefully. And so they were developed in this very secret environment, and they had continued to adhere to this code of secrecy. And so they became kind of underground and clandestine. And so with this very alluring, mysterious legend about this group that retains their power through carefully plotted assassinations with a magical wonder drug and an old man in the mountain and no one arguing, it sticks around. It sticks around long enough for us to get to this Desaki's dissertation on how assassin derived from the word hashishan. And all the way to listicles and YouTube videos. And... The floor of the U.S. Congress. <laughs> and being used to say that marijuana will cause you to kill people? <laughs> Makes you a homicidal maniac, yeah. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> it really is. So, you can't. we can't talk about ancient super soldiers without talking about the Greeks and such forth. Such forth, yes. That's where the heroes were, Jacob. That's Age where, of heroes. That's where there were gods walking among us and... There were children who were part God and part human. And if they did all of their labors correctly, they could get to go to live on Olympus with their dad. And he'd finally accept them. And Kevin Zorbo ruined my life. And the Disney movie. And the Disney movie. But yeah, there's like half God people. That was a thing. That was a huge thing in Greek writing. Of course. And there's so many mythical warrior classes. 
Are we going to talk about the Amazons? Oh, no, that is its own episode. Oh, okay, fine. Are we going to talk about the Spartans? Go watch 300. I may. <laughs> I bet you will. No. I think I found out Michael Fassbender was in that. Or did I, I dream so. it? I think he dreamed it. He's not. Oh, no, he's not. It's uh, Mal. Mal's in it. No, he's not. Yeah, from Firefly. He's the guy that lives to tell the story. He's got an eye patch. He's in it. I think you're also dreaming that. I didn't. Uh-huh. Now let's talk about another mythical, historical, legendary warriors. The Sown Warriors. How is Sown spelled? S-O-W-N. Okay. So Cadmus was the son of the King of Tyr, and he was also the brother of Europa. Did he find Europe? Nope. Europa is the one who is famously abducted by Zeus in the guise of a white bull. Now, one day when Europa and her fellow nymphs were gathering flowers, Zeus came to her in the guise of a white bull. So, as Europa was stroking the bull... Mm-hmm. Her the hand bull, stuck to it, and he drug her underwater and ate her. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> the bull runs off with Europa on his back, swims through the sea, arrives in Crete, where Europa realizes that she has been abducted by Zeus. That, that's pretty safe assumption. If you're abducted... Your maiden, and you're in Greece, is Zeus. Most likely. Chief of the Me Too movement. You mean chief cause of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like OG. Oh, no, yeah, like goddess would be, hmm, would it be Athena? Hera? Hard to say. I think Athena would be the goddess of the Me Too movement. I mean, she did split his head open. I know. I think it's her. <laughs> or came out of his split head. So all of her brothers went out searching for her. Okay. Crossland's a great quest, one might say. So Cadmus, the hero of our story, decided to go to the Oracle of Delphi to ask for help. And do magic drugs again. Again. The Oracle advised him to give up his search for Europa and to find a new city. To locate it or to found it? Found it. So he was instructed to follow a cow. To find the bull. No. Yeah. To find the city. Find the city. Okay. Now, wherever the cow would stop to rest is where he should find the city. Found the city. So, as he walked out, he found a cow, started following it. I miss these instructions. I love it. Now, of course, the cow comes to rest. And he's like, all right, this is perfect. Ta-da. This is where we're going to build our city. Let us sacrifice this cow to (gasps) Athena. But she told you where to... But she just gave you directions. (laughs) Typical man. So... He needed to find pure water in order to sacrifice the cow. So he sent some of his companions out. As they were filling their vessels with water, a fierce dragon serpent creature comes. The guardian of the spring. And also the son of Ares, by the way. With its crest-like head and venomous teeth shining like gold, it slaughtered all of Cadmus's companions. That went well. So when all of his companions don't come back with the water, he's like, what the hell? And he goes to find them. And instead of finding them... He definitely finds the dragon, too, the with dragon. his glistening teeth and its crested head. And yes. it's... I'm angry. So after a fierce struggle, he manages to slay it. He Does then, that count as a sacrifice? No. Cow's still on the hook. Yep. He sacrifices the cow to Athena. Mm-hmm. Athena says, hey, go take that dragon's teeth and plant half of them in the ground. Now, as soon as he does, a host of fierce warriors appear out of the ground. And before Cadmus can engage them, 
The armed men start fighting amongst themselves. Oh no. After this epic battle, only five dragon teeth warriors are left standing. So these five men are called the Spartoi, the sown men. Mm-hmm. Sown, like out of the ground sown. With the teeth. Teeth seeds. Now they all play their loyalty to Cadmus and helped him build the city of Cadmia, at which they then changed the name to Thebes. I've heard of it. Took a while. <laughs> now, in the ancient times, all of the noble families of Thebes claimed their descent directly to these five sown men. Now, also, Cadmus is famous for introducing the Phoenician alphabet. Oh, he was a regular Renaissance man. Right? Before his time. Now, while that is, of course, just mythology, there is a Thebian military force that is mythological, but also historical. Oh, fun. There's the Thebian Sacred Band. Do they have instruments? No, but there should be a band named after them. (laughs) (laughs) So they were an elite military force of 300 men that remained undefeated for 40 years in the mid-4th century BCE. They defeated the Spartans in great victories, but were eventually defeated by Philip II of Macedonia and his son. Alexander the Great. Great. Before he was the Great. (laughs) Alexander, he's going to be pretty. Alexander the Pretty Good. (laughs) He's he's all right. He's an all right guy. (laughs) You're going places, kid. Alexander the all right. (laughs) So the earliest surviving records of the sacred band by name was in 324 BC. So... Toot sweet. Right then. Yeah. In the oration against Demosthenes by an Athenian logographer, Dinarchus, he mentions the sacred band as being led by General Pelopidas. Now, the sacred band is made up of Erastus and Eromenos couples. I don't know what those words mean. Well, the first one, Erastus, the older lover. Okay, yeah, I'm familiar with this concept. And the second one means beloved, and it's a younger person. Okay, so these are same-sex couples made up of a kind of mentor-mentee. Yes, exactly. Okay, so are are they like? I'm just like I'm thinking. Are they are they conscripted? Um, <laughs> so this is like a prerequisite for being in this band. This is part of it. This is what makes them the sacred band. Okay, so. Plutarch wrote about them in the life of Pelopidas. Tribesmen and clansmen make little account of tribesmen and clansmen in times of danger. Whereas a band that is held together by the affection between lovers is indissoluble and not to be broken. Since the lovers are ashamed to play the coward before their beloved and the beloved before their lovers. And both stand firm in danger to protect each other. So Plutarch tells us that lovers presented their beloveds with suits of armor when they later came of age. So Aristotle records that lovers and beloveds were oaths at the tomb of Aeolus. So Plutarch did attempt to explain the sacredness of the sacred band by referring to Plato's designation of the lover as an entheos fialis, divinely inspired friend. I, I really do think like mentor, mentee with with sincere affection and love is kind of like what they're wanting us to glean from their descriptions of the relationship. I mean, obviously there's like, you know, you could just say romantic love, but it seems like there's a very important 
teacher student kind of relationship that that they're really harping on. All right, so just like with the assassins, it is debated, but most people feel like this was part of a pederastic relationship. Pederasty is that's like Nambla territory. Like they're saying they're like youths, like it's not. It was perfectly socially acceptable at the time in certain parts of Greece. Okay. Some places more than others. And it was different in some places compared to others. So it was always a relationship between a younger and an older man. Sometimes it was purely platonic. Can I can I talk about where that word comes from for a second? Where does it come from? <laughs> from from Plato. Of course. In the dialogue Phaedrus, which I'll pause go read it. I'll pause go read Phaedrus. <laughs> Seriously, it's not that long. You'll make it. You've got Hutzpah. Just like that scrawny kid from Brooklyn, but intellectually. But basically, Phaedrus is all about him debating whether or not to engage in a sexual way with Phaedrus, who is his beloved, like his his student. His student. And he's like, you remain perfect and unattainable if I don't do that. Like, you can continue to be this this truth that I near but never touch and it's very interesting but it comes from this idea of not touching the one you desire right so in some places it was platonic like that now in other places it did less platonic a sexual relationship as well so when Plato was writing about this he said if we could somehow contrive to have a city or an army composed of Arasti and the Eremenoi, they could not be better citizens of their country than by thus refraining from all that is base in a mutual rivalry for honor. And such men as these, when fighting side by side, one might almost consider able to make even a little band victorious over all the world. For a man in love would surely choose to have all the rest of the host, rather than his favorite, see him forsaking his station or flinging away his arms. Sooner than this, he would prefer to die many deaths. While as for leaving his favorite in the lurch, or not succoring him in his peril, no man is such a craven that love's own influence cannot inspire him with a valor that makes him equal to the bravest born, and without doubt what Homer calls a fury inspired by a god in certain heroes and the effect produced on lovers by love's peculiar power. So with him saying that, it's like, it's almost like someone took his theoretical idea, you know, like, wouldn't it be great if, and was like, no, totally happened. Right. And so these relationships existed. And you were asking, like, how young were they? They were like the same age as girls were getting married. So you're like 14, 15 years old. Normal for that time period. Right, when people died at 40. And usually they were courted, Mm -hmm. and the father would have to approve of it. Okay. Approve of the relationship. Nothing was hidden from the father. But it is interesting because Plato kind of put this puts this idea out. Mm-hmm. And some people do think that the story of the sacred band may be an amalgamation. Because there is, without a doubt, a small band of Thebans that were highly trained, that were extremely successful. Mm-hmm. One of the writers that mentioned this band is like Herodotus. And there are actually 11 texts by nine different authors that refer explicitly to a Thebian sacred band. Six mention the erotic component. Mm -hmm. 
So it's really hard to say if that was part of it or not. But looking in the greater context, I lean to yes. Most people do, but there are plenty of people that don't as well. I mean, it really was common practice among like men of a higher station. Right. It was a social networking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you had this built in mentor. Right. It was almost like an apprenticeship. It was an apprenticeship. Right. It was. No, it, it was. But with extra components. Like, clearly, not all apprenticeships are love or beloved relationships. They are. You should contact your HR department. <laughs> Seriously. It's written about in histories. But is there anything beyond the written word that would support this? Like, is there any external, like, archaeological, etc. proof? Maybe. Maybe. I love yes. maybe. So Pausanias wrote a description of Greece, which was like a travel guide back in the day. Those are the most fun. And it's extremely accurate. Like, you know, you can look at it and you can, you know, see the archaeological digs and things they found and see that it is very accurate. Mm -hmm. So in Pausanias's description of Greece, he mentions that the Thebians had erected a gigantic statue of a lion near a village surmounting the polyandrian of the Thebians killed in battle against Philip II. So in 1818, a British architect named George Ledwell Taylor spent a summer in Greece, and he decided he was going to use Pausanias' guidebook to go riding around Greece. Fun! I want to be his friend. I want to like live then, but then all the terrible things too, and disease, it's so hard. You would have been a great naturalist. I know, but then, like, you can die of polio. I don't want to live then, because <laughs> I would be dead. Yellow fever, I don't know. I mean, my pregnancies alone would have killed me. So, definitely picking now, we'll always long for that. So, as he was riding his horse out one day with friends, using this guidebook, the horse stumbled upon something. So, he turns around, and he looks at it, and he thinks it looks kind of like sculpted marble. Now, he... You know, got some help from the locals, and they were able to uncover the marble head of a large lion. Now, in 1902, he finally got permission. He didn't have permission yet? I love, I love 1800s. I guess people got permission to erect the monument, to, you know, put it back together and put it up. The lion stands at 12 and a half feet tall and was mounted on a reconstructed pedestal about 10 feet high. Now, in the late 19th century, excavations in the area revealed that the monument stood at the edge of a quadrangular enclosure and the skeletons of 254 men laid out in seven rows were found buried within. Now, they also found vases and coins dated to 4th century BCE. So there really was a Theban ban that was wiped out by Philip II. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. It's pretty well documented. And so the question really is whether they had, what kind of relationship the men had. But I love to think that their superpower, it, it was, was love. love. Aww. <laughs> Aww. Also, the number is so right on. Like, right, I know. Ah. I know. And that number is recounted in the more platonic descriptions of them as well so we know in the world of myth and legend and these 
these real life historical events that have become legends in their own right. We know that there are special powers and cryptic stories as far back as there have been wars. But we started at World War II. Right? So I really want to know if there was some effort to create super soldiers during this war or if our super soldier, Steve Rogers, was just a story. Well, of course there were super soldier serums in World War II. Like what? Um, let's see. Have you ever heard that you should eat your carrots? I have. I have told my child that lie. It's good for your eyes. It's good for your eyes. It's good for your eyes. That's, the, tr- that's right? the truth. So a U.S. propaganda poster read, Night sight can mean life or death. Eat carrots and leafy greens or yellow vegetables, rich in vitamin A, essential for night sight. I clearly am not eating enough carrots because I can't see in the dark. Well, so our super soldier in question is John Cat's Eyes Cunningham. He was a flying ace during the bombing of London. He became the leading Royal Air Force night fighter pilot of World War II, chalking up 20 kills and numerous decorations, all flying over the English Channel in the dark. That's damn impressive. Oh, and he was also good looking. Good looking, you say. As the Washington Post said, 25 years old, blonde, and handsome enough to make a couple of movie stars worry about their jobs. Oh, wapo. You shouldn't have. And he had amazing night vision. Is that true? This was all because he was eating all of these carrots provided by the British War Service. <laughs> Okay, so he was getting rations of carrots because that would grow, and it gave him superpowers. Supervision. Super night vision, specifically. Yes, because yes, he was a night pilot. Well? Well, he was really good, a flying ace, but it wasn't necessarily due to the carrots in his diet. It was due to the AI Mark IV, the onboard airborne interception radar system. He had radar. But that was super secret. We couldn't tell anyone we had radar. No one could know about that. So we would just say, eat your veggies. So we would say, (laughs) it's because he ate his vegetables. Now, (laughs) this was the perfect ruse to cover up new advancing technology, because it played in perfectly with Britain's food propaganda. On December 22nd of 1940, the British Ministry of Agriculture released a statement urging the populace to eat carrots. If we included a sufficient quantity of carrots in our diet, we should overcome the fairly prevalent malady of blackout blindness. Blackout means something specific here. It means like when the lights go down because we're being bombed. Well, when they would black out the city whenever the bombers would come. Yeah. So whether or not the Germans bought it, no one really knows. The British public generally believed that eating carrots would help them see better during these citywide blackouts. And advertisements with the slogan, carrots keep you healthy and help you see in the blackout, appeared everywhere. So literal. So literal. Now in 1941, the cartoon character Dr. Carrot was introduced with spectacles. Why does he need glasses? Good question. A white coat, top hat. And a briefcase full of vitamin A. It sounds so fancy. And it helped promote consumption of surplus crops. So they had extra carrots. It was something very easy to produce, especially in Victory Gardens. Yeah, okay. Now, they did call Walt Disney up, and he helped produce the whole carrot family. Yay! Including George and Clara Carrot. But the government made so much noise about carrots that it was news in the U.S. and elsewhere. 
Lord Walton, who was the head of the program, who is trying to wean the British away from cabbage and Brussels sprouts, is plugging carrots. Raymond Daniel, the New York Times London bureau chief, wrote, To hear him talk, carrots contain enough vitamin A to make moles see in a coal mine. (laughs) Uh, So Lord Walton was known to say, A carrot a day keeps the blackout at bay. Clever. So they promoted putting carrots in everything. So this propaganda to get people to eat surplus crops led people to think that it would help night vision, which was promoted by a flying a super soldier (laughs) who actually just had radar. And this is why your grandma says eat carrots because they're good for your eyesight. Are they actually, Doc? If you are deficient in vitamin A, then it'll help your night vision. It will not help your eyesight. But vitamin A deficiency is the leading cause of night blindness in the world. But that is in countries where they are severely deficient. I love this story. (laughs) It's my favorite. I need to see the Dr. Carrot cartoon. While the British were eating carrots, the Germans were eating meth. (laughs) Sounds about right. It's true, though. So in the Weimar Republic, Germany had a thriving pharmaceutical industry. They were the leading exporter of things like morphine and opiates and cocaine and amphetamines. Cool. So drugs were literally available on every street corner. And a lot of this was available over the counter because, you know, the 30s. (laughs) So when Hitler came to power, it was important that he establish himself as this unassailable superhuman. Yeah, supreme leader. So he was, you know, going to work tirelessly. He was going to purify his body and allow no toxins, not even coffee, to defile his temple. So in 1930, one of his allies said he is all genius and body. And he mortifies that body in a way that would shock people like us. He doesn't drink. He practically only eats vegetables. Ah, carrots. And he doesn't touch women. Poor Ava. I know. So when they seized power in 1933, they outlawed these seductive poisons. Oh, no. And in the years that followed, people who used drugs were deemed criminally insane and executed either by lethal injection, more drugs, or sent to concentration camps. And then drug use began to be very synonymous with Jewishness. Of course it was. And the Nazi party's office of racial purity claimed that the Jewish character was essentially drug dependent. Therefore, since we're getting rid of drugs, let's get rid of Jews too, or vice versa. Who can tell? The logic is flawed. In a letter that was sent in 1939 from Heinrich Boll, who would be a future Nobel laureate, he was on the front lines. He was fighting for Germany. He wrote back home to his parents. Now, this is getting into like the everyman experience. Let's leave the Supreme Leader for a moment and look at the soldiers. And so he writes to his parents and he begs them for Pervitin. So that was the -the over-the-counter amphetamine. It was. And his parents had better access to it than the men fighting did because they all needed it all the time. Right. And so they were running through it. But he writes back to his parents and he's like, war sucks and drugs, basically. (laughs) Nobel laureate. It's like Vietnam. They, they were not writing home. They were writing across the street. So the director of the Institute for General and Defense Physiology, directed by Otto Rank, and he was in charge of keeping the soldiers in fighting shape. And he examined the effects of Provitin and concluded that it was indeed an excellent medication for exhausted soldiers 
because it all but made sleep unnecessary and made them more vigilant and they did stuff quicker. Ah, they're tweaking. Perfect. (laughs) So Rank eventually became addicted to the drug himself, but he observed that he could work up to 50 hours on Providen without feeling fatigued. Wow. It also switched off inhibitions and made it easier to fight, or maybe it just made them less scared to fight. Whatever. Seemed to be working great. Now, in 1940, plans were made to invade France through the Ardennes Mountains, and a stimulant decree was sent out to the army doctors. And it recommended that soldiers take one tablet per day, two at night in short sequence, and one or two tablets after two or three hours, if necessary. Now, there was also another drug produced, D9, and it contained equal parts cocaine and painkiller, five milligrams of each, as well as providing. So it was oxycodone. <laughs> With amphetamine. Amphetamine and cocaine. Yeah. All mixed together. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Amazing <laughs> that they didn't win. Like, it really is. So it was distributed to the army and the Luftwaffe, and production of the substance was increased. Like, it is important to say that the U.S. military was also using amphetamines in their Air Force pilots as well. I mean, you're kind of stuck there. It's like, not to the same degree, and they weren't, like, mixing with cocaine and oxycodone and taking it all the time. It was used for, like, long flight, uh, especially at night. Well, I mean, you're you're stuck in the plane. Like, you can't fall asleep. There's not... Exactly. So an author named Olar who wrote Blitzed, which is about drug use in Nazi Germany. He says that the invasion of France was made possible by drugs. No drugs, no invasion. He says it's that instrumental in the Nazis' fighting success. Interesting. So in 1944 and 45, when it was becoming very clear that they were not so much going to defeat the Allies, the German Navy developed a range of one-man U-boats. And they had this idea that they'd take these tiny little submarines, these little, I hope they were yellow, submarines, and send them up the Thames, and that way they could get to London. Now, they could only be used by lone Marines piloting them that could stay awake for days at a time. So Dr. Gerhard Orzakowski, who was the head pharmacologist of the Naval Supreme Command in the Baltic, started developing a new super medication, which was a cocaine chewing gum. That would be the hardest drug that German soldiers had ever taken. Now, it was tested at one of the concentration camps on a track used to trial new shoe soles for German factories. And so the prisoners were required to walk and walk and walk and walk in circles until they dropped. And they put them on cocaine, cocaine chew- and made chewing them walk. gum. Holy shit. This is insane. Sisyphean task. Oh, if ever. With coke. So Oler says, it was unreal. This was not reality. But if you're fighting an enemy bigger than yourself, you have no choice. You must somehow exceed your own strength. That's why terrorists use suicide bombers. It's an unfair weapon. If you're going to sit a bomb into a crowd of civilians, of course you're going to have success. So at the time, the Nazis were using stimulants and opioids to push their soldiers to the absolute brink of human possibility. Right. They were trying to go like over or beyond or become somehow super. They were super soldiers trying to become the Ubermensch. 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 I'm going to talk about Nietzsche and I'm going to say it wrong every time. So if you're one of those people that thinks it has to be Nietzsche. Nietzsche. I'm sorry. 
You have to be angry when you say it. That's I don't have did. a mustache, so I can't even say it right. Be angry. Nature. Nature. Or like, depressed. Nature. It sounds like a sneeze if I say it like that. <laughs> so, no. Or have allergies. Whatever. Right. So, this is one of the key passages written by Frederick Wilhelm Nietzsche in Thus Spake Zarathustra, saith the Nietzsche. I teach you the overman. Man is something that shall be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? Teach. All beings so far have created something beyond themselves. And do you want to be the ebb of this great flood and even go back to the beast rather than overcome man? What is ape to man? A laughingstock or painful embarrassment. You have made your way from worm to man, and much of you is still worm. Once you were apes, and even now, too, man is more ape than any ape. The overman is the meaning of the earth. Let your will say, the overman shall be the meaning of the earth. Man is a rope, tie between beast and the overman, a rope over the abyss. And what is great in man is that he is a bridge and not the end. So this is variously translated. Sometimes overman is written as beyond man, and sometimes overcome is written as surpass. So that can tr- very, you know, ch- definitely change the meaning of the passage. I teach you of the beyond man. Yeah, does it mean to be like super, or does it mean to just go beyond yourself? To think beyond yourself, I think, but we'll get there. I've, I've broken it all down. Not all of it. I've broken most of it down. Some of it. Some of it. <laughs> I can confidently say I've broken some of it down. Also, he is a bridge and not an end is sometimes translated as he is a bridge and not a goal. Like, we don't want to just be man. We want to be more than man. It's, it's the same question. It's the right? same question of, of what does that mean to be uber? So uber is an interesting word. And it does not have a direct, literal translation. It's an interesting German word. It can mean beyond, over, super. But it can literally be above or more than. It can also be to speak as and to speak about or across as in across the bridge, a point that is distant away from you. That's interesting. It's a very appropriate choice. Good job, Nietzsche. You picked a good word. <laughs> Ubermischk. It was introduced in 1833 in Zarathustra, and it was used in English by George Bernard Shaw in 1903, and then it was used by Hitler. We'll get there. And it was sort of reappropriated by the creators of Superman, Siegel and Schuster. Jerry Siegel had read a short story, The Reign of Superman, which kind of used this, a darker version of this concept in 1933. And then he decided that Superman should be a good guy. And that's where that, that started. I love it. So we've mm. kind of talked about Uber. What is Mishk? Mishk is interesting as well, because it is not just man, which you'll always hear it translated as man. It's human being. It's like humanity? One of the race of human being. Hashtag feminism. Okay. (laughs) But I find it interesting because it's also a Yiddish word. It sounds Yiddish. Right? And a mishk is like a good or admirable person. Right. And fun fact, you can be unmishk. Oh, that sounds bad. Which is to be a person who is genuinely unlikable. (laughs) So. So Hitler was an unmishk. (laughs) Unmishk. (laughs) So what is the Ubermischk? We learn in Zarathustra that the Ubermischk is basically willing to risk everything and forsake himself for the sake of progressing humanity. It's almost like he's like 
seeking enlightenment. I guess for the whole the whole of the race. Not the race. That's super not safe. The whole of humanity. Right. In order to advance, think obelisk. Think 2001. You realize that this is the name of the musical piece over that movie. The bomb. 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 Okay. Yeah. So think that. <laughs> bomb. 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 So in order to bring on the next phase, get to the next point, get further away from worms, we have to forsake ourselves and our immediate wants and needs in order to pursue something higher than ourselves. Problem, though, we've been doing that forever, you might say. Well. But we're no greater than apes. We're no greater than apes, and it's because of religion. (sighs) Prescribed values set forth by nation states, codes of conduct, and yes, religion. We need to devise values for this post-God world in which we are living, saith the Nietzsche. And this Ubermensch represents the human quest to establish values in this post-religious world, a world that now lacks the authority on said morals, on said value systems. If we eliminate the church, if we eliminate that prescriptivist understanding of what it means to be a good person, we can get to the next level. So this is the humanist camp. This is the humanist camp. Or the nihilist camp. Both. Both. Depends on which side of the coin you're on. (laughs) So, Nietzsche says, dead are all gods. Now we want the overman to live. On that great noon, let this be our last will. He's essentially arguing that we can't transcend the baser part of human nature until we free ourselves from doing things just because we've been told to do them, until we have a more complete understanding of why we are following these rules, and not in a catechism way. Like, don't just follow it because it's written down. You're following it because you actually believe it. Right. So it's a chance to transcend this boundary between the bodily wants and needs that we all have and enlightenment or a true intellectual knowing. In this way, it's reckoning or contemplation of truth that leads us in the direction that will allow us to learn the real contours of human nature and human potential. And he sort of insists that the Ubermensch does not refrain from evil. And I mean evil in like a Nietzschean way, like not, you know, because we're beyond good and evil. We've done that. Of course, Like not, not evil like that, but we don't refrain from doing bad things or things that are hurtful because we... So we get in that Ayn Rand kind of idea, the way we're like kind of selfish in a way. No, because the only good there is, is to create more good. So no, it's kind of the opposite of Ayn Rand. The opposite. It's kind of the opposite. It blew my mind. Uh, so you don't simply avoid being evil because you've been instructed to. You're trying to pull humanity along, keep the progress moving forward, and not fall back upon yourself, not go back to a previous incarnation your, of this human animal. Your base animal instincts. Right. Thus saith the Nietzsche. Oh, my brothers, your nobility should not look backward but ahead. Exiles shall you be from all father and forefather lands. Your children's land shall you love. This love shall be your new nobility, the undiscovered land in the most distant sea. For that I bid your sails search and search. In your children you shall make up for being the children of your fathers. And thus shall you redeem all that is past. This new tablet I place over you. So it is a very forward-looking philosophy. It is 
progressive. It is not regressive. It is not self-centered. It is about creating a land which apologizes for all of the stupid shit humanity has done. It is worthy of the step beyond us. Like as long as we're progressing forward, the sins of the fathers are forgiven. They will be forgiven once our children are great. Yeah. So your ability to adjudicate your own set of values makes you the bridge between humanity and this next phase of humanity. And between the unknowable and the known, you are suspended, not quite a spider dangling over the fiery pit of hell because you're going like more horizontal. And we also don't believe in hell anymore. We don't believe in (laughs) hell anymore. But you have this sort of divine spark about you that allows you to even pursue this goal. And it's within you. It's not from God on high. It is from within. By virtue of existing and being a human, you have this potential. So you're human. You're bridging, you're reaching, you're progressing, and it's guiding you toward this ultimate goal of every human being, which is to attain a sense of meaning, or more appropriately for Nietzsche, to avoid a sense of meaninglessness, because that's the way he phrases it. Of course. (laughs) Glass is half empty, but whatever. And so you must contribute to the world in a lasting way. And you do this by using reason and experience and your own innate judgment, truly intellectual judgment, not want or need, And through wholeness, through integrating all the disparate parts of yourself, which is very Jungian, totally see that. But you integrate all your learned experience, rational faculties, and contemplations, and become something more than mankind, something more than than standard issue. You have an original idea, you have an original thought, and that's progress. And in that way, we're exceeding what has already been known of man and going on. Thus saith Nietzsche, human being who has organized the chaos of his passions, given style to his character, and become creative, aware of life's terrors, he affirms life without resentment. And so we have eliminated the sense of meaninglessness that can accompany the death of God, and our aims are more altruistic if we are more fully integrated as people, and we seek to find meaning not just for ourselves, but for the human race. We seek to give everyone purpose and define that purpose and bring all of our brothers and sisters along with us as we go alone. Because we have to do it alone. Of course. But. For our children, though. But for the future. For the children. For the betterment of mankind. And lastly, thus saith the Nietzsche, the Ubermensch shall be the meaning of the earth. I entreat you, my brethren, remain true to the earth, and do not believe those who speak of your superterrestrial hopes. Behold, I teach you the Ubermensch. He is the lightning He is this madness. Behold, I am a prophet of the lightning and a heavy drop from the cloud. But this lightning is called Ubermishk. So essentially, the Ubermishk is a very well-adjusted, mentally fit nihilist. That likes humanism. Kind of. But I thought he was a big old Nazi. They hated Jews. Well, he kind of got a... A makeover. A makeover. Gotta uh, imagine a montage with Hitler, like going, "Now we put on the lipstick." Let me paint you, <laughs> like one of the French girls. <laughs> Your mustache is so luxurious. What do you do with it? So he gets a furious makeover. <laughs> no, furious eye for the nihilist guy. <laughs> Episode title. But so Hitler's the one that remakes his ideas and his writing? So Hitler is mainly responsible, but she, he could not have done it 
the way he did it, if it were not for Nietzsche's sister. Who? Elizabeth was oh. her name. And after his death, she took control of the publication of his work and eliminated any creative input from editors that he had previously worked with. And she also took control of his legacy. This is not going to go well. It does not. No, this is despite the fact that they had had a a rift in their relationship, which was caused mainly by her nationalist views and her anti-Semitism. Oh. And the thing was, the fact that she had those views left her very charmed by young Adolf Hitler. Now, before her death in the mid-30s, she personally thanked Hitler for rehabilitating her brother's legacy. Oh, good. So we've discussed on the podcast at some point before that Hitler was rejected from art school. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Okay, so he was like a very sad... Nihilistic artist. Nihilistic artist. No, he believed in lots of stuff, like mainly himself. Yeah. And so that's a thing. And so when he sits about and he's like, I'm going to make the most perfect regime that has ever been. You know, it should be very artsy. Artsy? Artsy. This, this regime would be very artsy. Oh. And, and evil. I think, oh, yeah. I think also evil. Well, there is no good and evil. Yeah, there's evil. I'm it. <laughs> so this is taken from a paper called Culture War, How the Nazi Party Recast Nietzsche by David B. Dennis. It's really good. You should look it up. Like, it's got lots of pictures. <laughs> he states that allusions to great creators and their works were used in propaganda by the Nazis to remind the Volk to love and worship their nation. The nation had produced these creative geniuses. Look what they made. It's so awesome. Don't you feel good about Germany? So in the words of the French scholar Eric Michaud, author of The Cult of Art and Nazi Germany, Nazis used culture to make the genius of the race visible to that race. Ah, uh, look how smart we are. We are very talented. We are uber. We are uber talented. <laughs> so, you know, when we've got all this great art, and look, we've even got this artistic leader, this true creative genius at the helm. Das Führer is very talented. And so Hitler is cast as this perfect, creative artistic leader. Goebbels, the propaganda minister, said that art is no mere peacetime amusement, but a sharp spiritual weapon for war. I mean, he really did do that, too. I mean, just the propaganda, the staging. I mean, the staging. staging. And just seeing how much thought, like, Hitler and these people, like, put into their presentation and, and how they would give speeches and how he'd practice, you know, facial expressions. Hand motions. Exactly. It's very important to practice in the mirror. Jazz hands. So Dennis examined the Nazi newspaper, Volkischer Biobach, from the years 1920 to 1945, and he was looking to see what role high culture played in Nazi messaging and propaganda. He writes, while the Nazi co-optation of many great figures in Western intellectual tradition during these eventful years proves revealing, one need look no further than the party's claim on Friedrich Nietzsche to see how culture became entwined in the discourse of politics and war in the pages of Hitler's foremost propaganda outlet. Now, fitting Nietzsche's ideas in with any single worldview is, is tough, but there are significant obstacles that must be overcome when integrating him into the Nationalist Socialist Party. 
Like he wasn't German? That's one. Yeah, he sometimes said he was Polish, but he did not actually think that nationality should be recognized. He kind of he had this vision for a united Europe. Oh, um, interesting. He you know thought that the geopolitical boundaries were pointless and that we should transcend them. Yeah, and, I mean, it makes sense. It's just like God, you know, yeah. you worship the state, you worship the religion. Right. So he was like just not into being anything. But yes, yeah, sometimes he said he was Polish, which, yeah. Now the paper wrote that Nietzsche was opposed to this idea of being German because, you know, during his lifetime under Otto von Bismarck, national identity remained an empty shell, even though Frederick Nietzsche wrote nationalism as I understand it today, is a dogma that requires limitation. Clear. We're not, I'm not on board with nationalist bullshit. However, the Nazis... Oh, well, he just didn't like that nationalist bullshit. Right. They were like, he says that, as I understand it today. He, he, said, he said it. Who would want to be German then? Everyone wants to be German now. And he would clearly like be all about it, if only he'd met our very fancy Fuhrer. Frederick Nietzsche says, I am perhaps more German than the Germans of today. And he did write that he valued... The earnest, manly, stern, and daring German spirit. The paper responded to this. He knew that there was still bravery, particularly German bravery. And that is definitely something different than the elan of our deplorable neighbors. It's a great spin machine you got there. So Frederick Nietzsche believed that it is German unity in the highest sense, which we have been striving for more passionately than for political reunification is the unity of German spirit and life. Now, in reality, even though he's talking about this idea of, like, a united Germany, he's saying, like, not, like, politically united, but, like, that we all kind of have a, a unity of spirit. And, like, we have a, a more holistic life. We can move life forward and, together. Yeah. He's saying this. He's kind of politically apathetic, actually. He described himself to anti-political German of them all. Now, the Nazis believe that the primary creative impulse was as much political as it was artistic. So him saying that he was not political was crazy because he was smart. <laughs> he has to be. So this is from the paper. We find here, at the first view, a sharp contrast with today's nationalist socialist thinking, but only at first glance. According to the paper, what Nietzsche understood by the term state was completely then our idea of state today. For him, politicization meant democratization, i.e. the greatest good for the greatest number. This Nietzsche hated, the paper said, because general prosperity would make mankind too lazy to invest powerful energy in a great individual, in a genius. How? <laughs> Nietzsche opposed high culture and the high political state as antagonist. However, the paper explained this away by citing the inferiority of the national character under different leadership. And they even went so far as to say that the state is the guardian and defender of culture. The state is a means for achieving the true goal of existence, not as a goal in itself, but it's a state built upon the Volk. And that, Nietzsche, the paper claimed, that idea, the state built on Volk, Nietzsche would have agreed with this idea of state with all of his heart. Oh, that's sweet, isn't it? Now, they complained that under the Weimar Republic, Nietzsche had been invoked far too frequently as this, like, international democratic star witness. But the paper said that Nietzsche hated and fought every form of democracy, both political and spiritual, and he had said so in the sharpest possible terms. The notions that all are the same and 
that at the base we are all just selfish brutes and riffraff were symbolic of our democratic age that believed in equality of men and established the weak, fat, and cowardly as standards for this equality. Yeah, this kind of sounds familiar. Right? <laughs> so how does Hitler fit in with this? Would they say like Nietzsche and Hitler would have been BFFs? Basically. So there was like this long line of Fuhrer artists slash artists slash Fuhrer mishmash geniuses. This heritable, traceable line of of thought. So Wagner's got to be there. Oh, well, yes, clearly. So people on the list were like Martin Luther. Of course. Beethoven. Of course. Wagner. And Nietzsche. Yeah, and then Hitler. And then Hitler. He's the natural successor to this line of great geniuses, these gifted men. Cultural renewal in accordance with this like very retconned history, was part of this very large Nazi project. It was the tone that they were setting. But it also contributed to like their very specific horrible practices as well. Cultural identity shaped the Nazi regime by not just justifying anti-Semitism, but leading to it. And all the policies of extermination and hatred that accompanied this anti-Semitism. Now, Hitler's racist standards for judgment were grounded and phrased in terms of culture. And I think he means high culture here. Oh, you think so? Yeah, damn. Not all of it? Just in general? I think he's classist as well. I think he thinks that the attainment of high culture marks them as deserving. Ah, okay. For leadership over the lesser Volk. But he says that you can divide mankind into three groups of people. He says this in Mein Kampf, so he's like literally says this. There are the founders of culture, there are the bearers of culture, and there are the destroyers of culture. So the founders of culture. High, high That's culture. like the list that you mm-hmm. just said. Like the elite. And then there are the Volk, the bearers of culture. Of course. And then there are the destroyers of culture, All which we're talking Hitler. Yeah. So it definitely means Jews. Jews, for sure. And he says, and only the Aryan race could be considered as the representative of the first group. So you have the Aryans, I mean the destroyers, there's gotta be... The Jews. The Jews. Like, so, um, great composers. Right, yeah. Mendelssohn, mm-hmm. Mahler, mm-hmm. writers. Yes. Artists. Yes. Um, terrible. Destroyers of culture. Right, they have to be eradicated, clearly. So, demonstrating that great cultural figures of the past would have agreed with the premises of the present was a major priority for the Nazi party. So, they had to go back, find all the great intellectuals who definitely weren't Jewish, not even a little Jewish. Not even a little. And they had to make sure that they twisted and polished. So, they needed pull quotes. They needed pull quotes. They needed blurbs. So, it became very essential to make sure that all of these great intellectuals were anti-Semites. So on the back of the Holocaust pamphlet, you had blurb reviews by Beethoven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, this is great. I hear those Jews are terrible, said deaf Beethoven. No. The paper actually printed to win over to our movement, spiritual leaders who think they see something distasteful in anti-Semitism. Isn't that crazy? It is extremely important to present more and more evidence that great recognized spirits shared our hatred of Jewry. This was written down and distributed. (laughs) I just can't even. Frederick Nietzsche's views on the so-called, quote, Jewish question posed a real problem because he had actually criticized 
the anti-Semitic views of Wagner, his own buddy, and his sister Elizabeth. Like, he and Wagner actually knew each other IRL, not just on this list. Not just Facebook friends. Yeah, or like Hitler made accounts and made them be friends. And, you know, his sister was anti-Semitic, and he had criticized her and her husband for this. He'd said, that's his silliness, don't do that. But they explained away his lack of anti-Semitic views thusly. This may be a result of the eruptive nature of his creativity and the shortness of his life, which didn't allow him enough time to get into these issues deeply. Oh. If he had lived longer... His next book... Would have been about the Jewry. The Jewry. Now, eventually, this fact was obscured even more when they wrote, Was Nietzsche an anti-Semite? He was. He was in the most intrinsic, pure, and sacred sense of the word. Again, they wrote this down and distributed it. Now, Alfred Baumler, who was the professor of philosophy at the University of Berlin, a position he was given largely on the basis of his Nazified Nietzsche, wrote that Frederick Nietzsche was, quote, the only one who saw the greatest of all the dangers threatening mankind. So the Nazis, in contrast to their enemies, who were, quote, reviling the great thinker, honored the philosopher who quote, wrestled with a new, pure image of man out of the confusion and degradation. Now, Michaud, the French scholar, wrote that the Nazi obsession with cultural historical past was not regressive, but a forward-looking call to action. Central to this was their appropriation of the German tradition of culture. And it was, he says, quite the reverse of a work of mourning. It was a process of reminiscence that asserted itself as faith in one's own power to reawaken the lost object. That is to produce the new man. I see how the, how easy it is to kind of twist his words, though. Yeah, because they're obscure. They're obscure even for people who live in them and, like, saturate themselves in Nietzsche all the time. Like, they don't speak for three years, like Little Miss Sunshine or whatever it is. You don't speak because of Nietzsche. But they go on to say that Nietzsche foresaw and loved the new man of Nazism. So he was psychic, too. <laughs> he was. And this is like the epitome of this nationalist, socialist self-validation. It's like they knew they were so wrong that they had to go back and rewrite history in order to pass themselves off as tolerable. Like, it was, it's actually really revealing to me. Victor always rewrites the story. This actively... <laughs> Sometimes. Maybe. A lot of times. South did. They lost. I think we did an episode on that one. Yeah. So one contributor to the paper even claimed that when he visited Frederick Nietzsche's grave, he heard a ghostly voice emitting from it. No. And thus make Frederick Nietzsche. Ghost. Ghost. The ghost. The spirit. So he writes, don't you hear anything? Is that not his voice speaking to us? We who fight and create? Quote, this is Nietzsche now. I want to say something to you, my brothers in spirit. Life means fighting and suffering. Sorrow makes some weary and soft, but strengthens the creator. Think of the fates of Michelangelo, of Beethoven, of Frederick the Great, and you will know how love and toughness can be strangely connected in man. No love, but stay tough for me. They literally are putting words in a dead man's mouth. Yes. No. (laughs) They are doing that. Did they do a seance? No, this was purely organic. Oh, he was just course. like there and the mustache poofed up from the grave. and So lucky. I know. 
So, but there were more problems. We needed there other things we had to deal with. But the paper smoothed them out nicely. So one of Nietzsche's like central tenets is the will's power, right? You desire something that is the will, and from that desire and action to quench it, you have power, will to power. It is very individualistic, very humanistic, very nihilistic. But here is something entirely different. Individuals can demonstrate their will to power not by becoming creative leaders alone, but alternatively by, quote, accepting the necessity of things and becoming a part and tool of great world events and even making the ultimate sacrifice, quote, the highest self-denial for one's Volk. In the years that Germany was gearing up for war, reading Nietzsche's concept of will to power was very appropriate for creating the Nazi military. But it's the exact opposite of what he's saying. Oh, yeah. It is literally the exact opposite. So in 1944, on Nietzsche's 100th birthday, Alfred Rosenberg gave the speech linking him to the Nazi movement. According to Rosenberg, the National Socialist Movement stood as a unified whole against the rest of the world, just as Nietzsche stood as an individual against the violent forces of his time. So they're like saying that this entire group of people is a stand-in for the man, for the individual. Like they are making his philosophy about a political state when it is literally about how you have to discover everything for yourself. (laughs) It is so impressive. It is impressive how they could spin things. The world of despicable financiers and their henchmen, the passions whipped up by millions of envious Bolsheviks, the destructive work driven by rage of the Jewish underworld. All this appeared shortly before the enormous purifying wave, Nazism, from the heart of Europe and began to flow. Now, as Nietzsche had done alone, the National Socialist Pan-German Empire stood as a block of will in the middle of a tremendous struggle, serving in full consciousness of the necessity of a great life. The necessity of, in Nietzsche's phrase, a European destiny. I don't think that's the destiny he meant. No! So you can see even when someone spends their entire life trying to explain themselves. Literally literally what he did. Somebody can still turn you into a swastika spangled mascot when they pull you out of the grave 100 years after you're dead. Are you saying that Nietzsche is Captain Nazi? Yes, I am. (laughs) No. He did mean to me, you guys. He just wanted to stay in the ice. So it's interesting because a lot of times people will kind of conflate the two Nazi things you talked about. You know, that Hitler wanted to create these Ubermen, these super soldiers, these Aryans. Right. And we haven't even touched on Lebensborn or the eugenics because that's for another day. But he is actively trying to create a kind of person. Like he's trying to change humanity to make it fit this superior image yeah yeah so that's the thing he does for sure now while hitler was reading nietzsche and reading that once you were apes and even now too man is more ape than any ape the overman is the meaning of the earth now according to legend stalin may have had a different idea and a different mustache a better one true true that Still soaked in blood, but a better one. (laughs) And over there, the British just have stiff upper lips and carrots. Good night vision. So in December of 2005, the Scotsman newspaper published a story about Stalin's half-man, half-ape super warriors. Bullshit, mama. You're going to talk about philosophy. I'm taking it the other direction. Okay, fine. 
The Soviet dictator, Joseph Stalin, ordered the creation of Planet of the Apes-style warriors by crossing humans with apes, according to recently uncovered secret documents. Question. Yes. Like, seriously, I need to rod Starling out with you for a second. They're not, they're not a mix in Planet of the Apes. They're, no. they're evolved apes, yes. right? Okay, just making sure. Yes. It's like, I feel I really missed something. <laughs> That's what you're worrying about now, though. Not that Stalin created half-man, half-ape, super-soldier hybrids. Well, I assumed that's what he was doing over there. <laughs> they have a linen mummy. Is that really that hard to believe? But if we're starting with our, like, so science fiction story, we have to start with a mad scientist. That is absolutely necessary. I assume it's not Stalin himself. It is not. Okay, so a subsidiary of Stalin. So our mad scientist in this story is Ilya Ivanov. Now, they must start, as all mad scientists do, as brilliant Top of their field. Yes. Pinnacle of achievement. They're going to change the world for the better. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1898, Ivanov had established in Moscow several zoological laboratories where he studied the structure and vital processes of sex organs of farm animals and impregnation. Well, he is off to a resounding start. From his observations, he concluded that the single condition necessary for impregnation was just the union of spermatozoa and egg. Are we really just figuring this out right now? So we're getting it scientifically proven. Proven. Okay. So basically what he figured out is you don't have to have pee in the V-sex. You can just have sperm sperm and egg. egg. Yeah. Because previously it was thought, especially by the church, that you had to have sexual intercourse, relations. Ah. Sex. Why was the church weighing in? Aren't they supposed to really? not have sex? Really? Why get- is the church weighing in? Wow. I can't believe the church is weighing in on something, especially a hundred years ago. But their whole thing is like, we don't have sex. No, we have sex in marriage to have children. To make more Catholics. Yes. Or uh, whatever. No, Catholics. Catholics are really the ones. I assumed capital C church. Well, here would be the Russian Orthodox Church. But he figured out that this is what you needed, and also that sperm will retain their motility for a certain length of time if properly preserved. So he figured out how to artificially inseminate livestock. Okay, that's actually huge. Huge. That is huge. Massively important scientific discovery. I mean, that is that is so important to animal husbandry and the keeping of livestock and mass production of food and all of those things. Yes, no, definitely. He quickly established an international reputation for his research on artificial insemination. Brilliant. Top of his field. Going to change the world for the better. Okay, we have checked our boxes. And he kind of broke with this idea. People would do it sometimes to like, you know, just to kind of help things along. But he was like selectively breeding. He was taking a stud, getting all the sperm and inseminating all the mares with it, etc. Okay. And so that was kind of a change too. And so he was creating stronger, healthier stock as well. Changing the face of animal husbandry for the foreseeable future. And then he decided he was going to maybe make some hybrids. Fun! Like ligers. Yeah. Oh! Like that. He made Zadonks. Get a guess? I have a guess. Zebra donkeys? Zebra donkeys. Okay. Zubrons, which was like a European bison and a cow. Various combinations of rats, mice, guinea pig, and rabbits. Fun. Rodentia. You've got Zorses. 
No. What's his, I'm sorry. Dr. Dr. Zeus called and he wants his animal Zorse. name back. Azorts is Azorts, of course, of course. So Azorus, I'm assuming, is a zebra donkey. A zebra and a horse. A zebra and a horse. I'm sorry. Yes. A zebra and a horse, obviously. Now, this was all known previously. He was a genius in the field of animal husbandry. He made a few fun hybrids and he changed agriculture for the better. So this is the legacy he leaves. That's the legacy he leaves. As far as the international community is concerned. Yes. Now, that article from the, the Scotsman. Moscow archives show that in the mid-1920s, Russia's top animal breeding scientist, Ilya Avanov, was ordered to turn his skills from horse and animal work to the quest for a super warrior. Nine! Any attempts to create any kind of super warrior were not known until the 90s when the Russian archives opened. So many things were learned when the Russian archives opened. This prompted a rash of lurid headlines. He became the Red Frankenstein. No, it's like the Red Hog. There were even suggestions that he had been ordered to breed super strong, hairy warriors for what the Sun in London dubbed Stalin's Mutant Ape Army. Catchy. But like, that's the Sun in London. I mean, it's uh, uh, fake news. Well, as early as 1910, he had given a presentation to the World Congress of Zoologists in which he described the possibility of obtaining such a hybrid of man and ape through artificial insemination. Okay, so in like 1910, evolution is a major thing and people are like, we didn't come from monkeys. And he's like, if we did, I can make one. Can make one. Can make a human monkey. A monkey. A <laughs> monkey. They're called humanzies, actually. Oh, nowadays. It's so much worse. So in 1924, he was at the Pasteur Institute. He is so legit, though. Like, he's not, he's still not, like, he's at the Pasteur Institute. He's actually making amazing discoveries. He is- oh, yeah. He hasn't done anything crazy yet. Okay. Now, he was there, and he was spoke to one of the directors, Emile Roux, who we mentioned in our rabies episode. He is one of the, of Pasteur's protégés, and took over after. And they wrote to Ivanov... June 12th of 1924, that it would be possible and desirable to do the hybridization experiment between humans and apes. Desirable, you say? Yeah. I think they were misinformed. (laughs) See, they had a primate station in French Guiana, and he felt like that would be the perfect place for this experiment. Handy. So the first year... Opposable thummy. When he went, the facility had no mature apes. So he went back to Paris... And to the Pasteur Institute. There, he worked on methods to capture adult apes, such as gassing them and nets. <laughs> I'm just building my monkey net. Don't mind me. Uh, and then he also hooked up with a celebrated surgeon in Paris, Serge Varnoff. Now, he was the inventor of an increasingly fashionable rejuvenation therapy. Now, what he would do is he would graft slices of ape testes into those of rich and aging men hoping to regain their former vigor. I don't think that's a good idea, Jacob. Oh, it's not. Okay. (laughs) Just as long as we are on the same page. Now, that summer, he and Ivanov made headlines by transplanting a woman's ovary into a chimp called Nora and then inseminating her with human sperm, hoping that the chimp could act as a surrogate to bear human children. Oh my God, that would be huge. It didn't work. Well, 
I see where the thought process was going. And can you imagine we would all have a pet monkey bearing our babies? But a lot of people would be excited about that. It's a way to completely avoid the Handmaid's Tale predicament. Oh, I can't wait for that season. Maybe like a Planet of the Apes crossover. So, Ivanov's proposal sparked the interest of Nikolai Petrovich Gorbanov, the head of the Department of Scientific Institutions in Russia. Now, in September of 1925, Gorbanov helped allocate $10,000 to the Academy of Sciences, which is about $100,000 today. Nice. For them to work on human-ape hybridization experiments in Africa. Why is the government paying for this? We'll get there. Okay. You heard me, super soldiers. I'm listening. No, you're not. I'm skeptical. <laughs> so in 1926, he traveled with his son to Vinciana and, you know, brought some bottles of sperm. And he was going to go on a monkey hunt. <laughs> got my son, I got my sperm, and I got my monkey net. <laughs> now, in 1927, Ivanov was able to capture several mature female chimpanzees and inseminated three of them. How'd that go? From his lab notebook. The injection took place in a very nervous atmosphere and in uncomfortable conditions. The threat from the apes, the work on the open ground, and the necessity to conceal. Conceal what? The natives didn't want him doing this either. Okay. (laughs) They didn't want anybody to know about it. Fair. So it is rumored that Ivanov used his own sperm, (laughs) but few people believe it. I mean, it seems practical. I mean, easy source, right? Right. But he does have writings in his journal about the people he got samples from. So the Ivanovs left Africa in July with 13 chimps, including the three they had attempted to inseminate. Now, while they were in Africa, after the failure of the insemination of those three chimpanzees, they had attempted to organize the insemination of human females in the hospital of the natives with chimpanzee sperm. It was, of course, without their knowledge. Wait, no, these women didn't know? Well, they didn't do it. Oh my, so... So they did ask the French colonial government, and initially they agreed. So Ivanov wrote in his journal that he and his son were offended by the governor's change of heart, calling it a bolt from the blue and a terrible blow. A bolt from the blue. Like, I can't believe they changed their mind about letting us put monkey sperm in human women and seeing what happens. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of a card-carrying member of the patriarchy. I'm just going to throw that out there. So while the female chimps did not work out, he got stuck on the idea of inseminating female women with ape sperm. Upon his return to the Soviet Union in 1927, Ivanov began an effort to organize hybridization experiments using ape sperm and human females. In 1929, through the help of Gorbanov, he obtained the support of the Society of Materialist Biologists, and in the spring of 1929, they set up a commission to plan the experiment. The Commission of Materialist Biologists sounds like a supervillain organization. (laughs) I mean, it's probably communist. So they're going to do this. They're going to get women, and they're going to put monkey sperm in them. That's the plan. Now, they decided they need at least five volunteer women for the project. And they got none. Oh, no. (sighs) Why? They wanted willing volunteers because this was in line with the new equality of women in the communist country. So Ivanov did find at least one volunteer. And we know that because their correspondence 
still exist. Now, she is titled G, coded that way, from Leningrad, who wrote to him, Dear Professor, with my private life in ruins, I don't see any sense in my further existence. But when I think that I could do a service for science, I feel enough courage to contact you. I beg you, don't refuse me. I ask you to accept me for the experiment. Honey, just buy some ice cream. Like, I don't care if your personal life's in ruins. I don't think that, I don't think you should do it. <laughs> no ice cream in Soviet Russia. Oh, fair. <laughs> Only ice and vodka. I could make it better. Fine! <laughs> So while they did have an assortment of apes, they never really flourished. And by the time Ivanov was ready to proceed, he had G all lined up. Their only adult male left, Tarzan, a 26-year-old orangutan. Wait, maybe dwell on the irony of this for a moment? Yes. He is an ape who's supposed to do human things, and Mm -hmm. Tarzan was a man who did ape things? Oh, yeah. Okay, fine. Oh, yeah. Fine. But Tarzan died of a brain hemorrhage. And a broken heart. True. Ivanov wrote, the orang has died. We're looking for a replacement. And he cabled that to G. So sentimental. Sweet. So a new set of chimps would not arrive at the station until the summer of 1930. Now see, the thing is, (laughs) during that time was a little bit of a political shakeup and purging. Uh Uh-huh. Now, there were different kind of competing groups of scientists within the communist regime. Other scientists rejected genetic research as bourgeoisie or imperialist. (laughs) And they felt that inheritance was of acquired characteristics. So that's Lamarckism, uh, which we talked about on the Bigfoot episode, Evolution. And that's where you will acquire traits in your life. And that is what passes on to your kids. So if you work out all the time... As an adult, then that will pass on to your kids. It's so laughable. The best example is the giraffe stretching its neck. Yeah. You just keep stretching. And so that stretching is what passes on. Yeah. Not survival of the fittest, the one with the longest neck. Sounds like a theory I'd come up with as a nine-year-old. This is definitely how it works. So one of the leading biologists, Lysenko, had Stalin's support, and he was a Lamarckist. And he had warned Stalin that genetic research would lead to eugenics as well as fascism. Cut to Hitler. Right. And Stalin agreed with him. I mean, kind of touche. <laughs> so, so many scientists were shot and killed. One of Ivanov's scientific enemies, Orsett Nineman, accused Ivanov of sabotage because some of his artificial insemination form instruments had apparently malfunctioned. So on December 13th of 1930, Ivanov was arrested and convicted of having created a counter-revolutionary organization among agricultural specialists. Oh my god. Everyone was conspiring against them, even the agriculturalist. Everyone. Everyone. (laughs) Paranoia. It keeps people in power. So he was sentenced to five years of exile in Kazakh, and he was eventually freed and promptly died. Oh, I'm sorry. In 1932. Poor Ivanov, without ever seeing his beautiful, beautiful monkey baby. So the renowned physiologist and psychologist Ivan Pavlov even wrote his obituary after he died. As in Pavlovian? As in ping? As in saliva? Yes. Yeah. I know that guy. Yeah. Still very well respected in the scientific community then, obviously. 
Right. He was extremely important <laughs> to their scientific world because no one knew about his secret monkey sex ring. <laughs> oh, God. Don't call it that. But yeah. On the year of his death, 1932, was the 15th anniversary of the October Revolution. We're going to need a party. It's going to need to be fabulous. So that's when we, we decide Mother Russia wants us to be communist. Of course. Okay. So the Bolsheviks were going to commission everything to try to celebrate this. They needed operas. They needed artwork. They needed books and plays and everything. Because if we know nothing from all of Russian history, it's that when you incorporate and enforce culture, people tend to get on board. Yeah. See Peter the Great. So an opera was commissioned from Alexei Tolstoy and Alexander Starchkov, and they teamed up with composer Dmitry Shostakovich, who is a famous Russian composer. And they started working on Arango. Is it like Arango Unchain? No, it, no. it's um, it is a pro Darwin, pro Kami um opera about a ape human hybrid. Uh huh. No. And is without a doubt inspired by Ivanov's experiments, which were actually referenced in many papers. I think I gave a wrong impression that it was super secret. <laughs> okay, so what you're telling me is that on their quinceanera, yeah. mm-hmm. communist quinceanera, Commie quinceanera, right? they were like, we're going to need some culture. We're going to need yeah. to celebrate Party. Russia. And they're like, there's really not much to say. We already have Potato, the miniseries. It was good. Vodka, the sequel. Much better. And, you know... We can only do so many versions of Vladimir Lenin, This Is Your Life. What else have we got? And they're like, there's that monkey thing. Monkey thing's a good idea. And they're like, you're right. We could make a documentary. Just kidding. How about an opera? What's more Russian than that? An opera about an ape-human hybrid named, I'm assuming, Orango. Of course. And the un- unfortunately unpublished opera. Oh, no, Jacob, you've dashed my Oh, oh you just wait. Hold on. A French biologist inseminates a female chimp with human sperm. Now a Paris-based journalist discovers this project, and his article creates widespread uproar. But the biologist continues his work. Now one day, he learns that his chimp has given birth to a human child. Orango! Exactly. Now this child grows up and finds work in the newspaper that first exposed the experiments. How poetic. He rises up the ranks and eventually takes charge. His new position gives him considerable political and social influence. But he is a fierce anti-communist. Orango is? Yes. But why is the opera named after an anti-communist? Oh, wait. So he becomes estranged from society. The woman he loves leaves him. Do we have stage directions that indicate how he's supposed to look? Unfortunately not. Okay. So his hatred for the working class grows... He speculates irresponsibly in the stock market, takes that <laughs> trophy wife, and goes bankrupt during an international financial crisis. <laughs> He's worshipping at the false altar of capitalism. Exactly. And as he does this, and as he reaps the terrible rewards of capitalism, he begins to regress into ape farm. A scandal erupts after he tries to rape the scientist's daughter, and Orango is finally unmasked. In his 
increasing isolation, he turns to the Catholic Church, but is rejected by the Pope. <laughs> At the <laughs> no monkeys allowed. <laughs> At the end of the play, Orango's metamorphosis into an ape is complete, and his wife sells him to the circus. Oh. He is caged, and the curtain falls. My Russia. Oh. <laughs> my ruples. Oh my not God, because that's not allowed. No, definitely not. Jacob. So we don't know why Shoshkotovich did not finish the composition. Probably because he was like, this shit is silly. Well, he wrote the piano score for the prologue, but he was already kind of on shaky ground with Stalin. And while the opera toes the party line, it's almost like lampoonist. Yeah, I can see that. It's like too satirical. It is very overt. Even the prologue that is the one part that's kind of finished-ish. Yeah. It's full of incident with workers' choruses, crazy dances, a silly zoologist, a pair of supercilious skeptical foreigners, and he is paraded as a freak in a cage by the entertainer. But never fear that it was not done. It has been completed now. Yay! Rejoice! At least the prologue. Uh, It was completed by composer Gerald McBurney, and it premiered in L.A. at Disney Hall just like two years ago. Because it was like found. No one knew about it for a very long time. Like, I feel like my new calling in life is to stage this somewhere. Like oh, you, oh, Google it. It's on YouTube. There's a, I found like a Russian performance of it. I could not find the Disney Hall performance. And it's fantastic. Again, I understand why they were going to pay for the opera because Quinceanera and all. But why were they paying for the monkey insemination in the first place? Why was the government funding it? Were they trying to make super hairy super soldiers? Good question. Now, in many articles, you'll read that Stalin supposedly told Ivanov, I want a new invincible human being, insensitive to pain, resistant, and indifferent about the quality of food they eat. Now, there's no evidence that Stalin was ever involved in this program. Though it is, of course, possible that someone on his team evaluating the proposal may have been able to extrapolate that. The Soviet media was keen to suggest that a new species... Uniting human strength with the subservience and agility of an ape could form a more obedient workforce and a stronger army. Which would make this communism thing work about better. (laughs) I guess so. I mean, if they just don't care. They don't complain. (laughs) Now, of course, they were trying to get the brain of a man in the, like, physical strength of an ape. I guess they never thought they could get it the other way around. Oh. Oh, that would be a waste. But with this, you see this kind of blurring of the boundary between humans and animals. And we really talked about that before, about how we were so worried about regressing to our animal state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked about that in our Jekyll and Hyde episode. But we definitely also talked about the way that this scientific evidence of our relationship to apes freaked people out in our Scopes Trial Bigfoot episode. Right. So... This concern about our regression to the primitive and animal state, you know, had to be on people's minds. Mm-hmm. You know, and definitely what Arango was talking about right. as well. Mm-hmm. It was that's what it was talking about. It was yeah. It was talking about yeah. That. 
Now, at the same time, the revolutionary program of communism was trying to get rid of all of these inequalities. Mm-hmm. Very quickly. Like yesterday. Like all, like today, right now. Destroying the old society's social and cultural taboos. And this scientific process could even help further that along. Right, establishing a set of values in a world in which God is dead. I think, I think I've heard someone else say that. <laughs> Maybe Nietzsche was a communist. So, you mentioned the Scopes trial. I did. In 1925, Scopes was found guilty, teaching that mankind arose from something other than divine creation. So, when Ivanov put his proposal to the Academy of Sciences, he painted it as the experiment that would prove that men had evolved from apes. Oh, and evolution would not be the theory of evolution anymore, right? It would be fact. So Ivanov said, this may provide extraordinarily interesting evidence for a better understanding of the problem of the origin of man and of a number of other problems from such fields of study as heredity, embryology, pathology, and comparative psychology. Psychology? Interesting. Interesting. So when Ivanov approached the government, he was trying to stress how proving Darwin right strike a blow against that religion. Get rid of it. In a world in which God is dead, man can be anything he wants. Including an ape. Yay! The success would not only bolster the reputation of Soviet science, but also provide useful anti-religious propaganda. So in voicing support for Ivanov's 1924 grant proposal, Commissariat of Agriculture said, The topic proposed by Professor Ivanov could become a decisive blow to the religious teachings and may be aptly used in our propaganda and in our struggle for the liberation of working people from the power of the church. Now, Ivanov did make the mistake of approaching Charles Smith of the American Association for the Advancement of Atheism for fundraising support. Mistake. Yeah, he was kind of a showman. He was trying to push his ideas forward. He liked to appear in public with a chimpanzee dressed in a business suit. Oh. Sound familiar? We had one of those at the Scopes trial. Yes. And he took this idea and went to the papers and ran with it. The New York Times thundered, Soviets back plan to test evolution. We are confident that hybrids can be produced, and in the event we are successful, the question of the evolution of man will be established to the satisfaction of the most dogmatic evolutionist. Now, Edward Slauson, who was involved in the Scopes trial, felt this hybridization would be perfect to prove evolution, and was circulating it around American newspapers that Ivanov would try to produce a hybrid between the highest anthropoid and the most primitive of the human race. Oh. It's even more racist. I'll cut some of it. (laughs) That's yucky. Ivanov wrote, In America, these news... Arouse sympathy in progressive newspapers and even the desire to provide us financial support. At the same time, our research caused a burst of indignation, a shower of abuse, and threats to me from fascists led by the Ku Klux Klan. This only confirms that our work has not only an exceptional scientific, but also a social significance. <laughs> well, if the KKK is against it, then it's got to be good, he says, and he's not wrong. So a lot of people land on the idea that this was at least funded to help push forward the ideas of pro-Darwinism, pro-evolution, anti-God, anti-church sentiments. Now, a few people have put forward the idea that maybe he was sent to Africa to get apes to get some of those sweet, sweet ape testes 
to graft into people. I think that's a good idea, a good thought. Well, that would make getting sperm from them hard. So there have been rumors of human Zs, as they've been coined, being created in China in the 60s and even Florida in the 1920s. It's just people from Florida. Desmond Morris, author of The Naked Ape, reported rumors of unidentified researchers in Africa growing hybrids, but even he dismissed it as no more than the last quasi-scientific twitchings of the dying mythology. So, you want to play a quick six degrees of just a story? 50 degrees? Nah. Nah. I can do it. So, this guy, Ivanov, trying to legitimize the idea of evolution. Yes. So was Scopes. Yes. Who is Scopes' lawyer that I love? Clarence Darrow. Who else did Clarence Darrow famously defend? Uh, Leopold and Loeb. And what were they trying to become by murdering an innocent child? Ubermensch. Ubermensch. We've done it. And then. And then. Nietzsche uh-huh. is saying that man needs to move beyond mm-hmm. our ape-based instinct. Circle. <laughs> done. Drop the mic. But we're not gonna. Because we got more stories. <laughs> A little more. Let's come to present day. Now, of course, if you start reading about current military activities, you'll hear about all sorts of newfangled things that DARPA, the defense... Against the dark arts. <laughs> that's definitely what it stands for. That's basically <laughs> it. That's what it stands for. But, you know, it's an experimental funding from the Defense Department for all this crazy stuff. You'll hear about exoskeletons being built. Hmm. You'll hear about gecko suits where you can walk up walls. Fun. Genetic, literally genetic engineering that may be able to be used in the future. And all of these things are so interesting to watch from a technological standpoint because who knows what is going to come out of it in a real sense. Well, when I was looking at modern day super soldiers, I ran across something that was too big of a lie to leave alone. Oh, please tell me. So, you know how only classy people say that they're classy? Sure. So this is from a website called Real News Right Now. Oh, I bet it's real. I bet it is too. And the title of this article, report, colon, Islamic State Fighters Terrified of Facing Transgender Super Soldiers. Oh, no. So in the Philippines, the report says, Islamic State Fighters are fleeing the Philippine city of Marawi at what U.S. intelligence officials are calling, quote, an alarming rate after rumors that the United States is preparing to deploy a battalion of transgender super soldiers to quash the ISIS foothold in the besieged city. And this news began to circulate on pro-jihadist websites last month. Uh, This has got to be Obama's fault. It is. Wait for it. So this idea, okay, they go on to quote an official that they say is General Major Mitchell Landry, who oversaw the Pentagon super soldier program under Obama. Of course. And she's talking to the real news right now. Well, no, they said they saw it on MSNBC, actually. (laughs) Really? Since you watched that 24-7. I did not see this. But maybe he was on Morning Joe because I don't watch that. Oh, they're so annoying. <laughs> anyway. So, General Mitchell Landry says, The idea that they somehow possess the strongest qualities of both sexes is simply incorrect. No, no, no. People are reading this and believing it. I know, I know, honey, I know. So, nonetheless, 
communications intercepted by U.S. intelligence obtained by the Washington Post. Oh, really? Really? Show that the Islamic State believes transgender super soldiers are so deadly that even President Donald Trump doesn't want anything to do with them. That's why he banned them. These guys are absolutely terrified, a senior U.S. intelligence official told The Post. Much of what we've been able to intercept is stuff you'd expect to see in a science fiction movie. Wow. So they're saying that this is like disinformation that's being spread on pro-jihadist websites. Not that they believe that this is a thing that the U.S. government is actually doing. But they're still, it is bombastic and crazy. (laughs) And then they talk to the head of the super soldier program. Under Obama. Well, like I want that. T- I want that little placard on my desk. It's like <laughs> Sam Levar, head of Super Soldiers under Obama, former Secretary of Super Soldiers under Obama, under Obama. <laughs> now it is hilarious that these super fake news, crazy website can think that this would scare people. But interestingly enough, in Liberia uh-huh. in the nineties uh-huh. with the terrible wars that were going on there was a group of fighters many of the children fighters and young fighters that would cross dress or wear female clothing whenever they went to fight well i mean like fashion but why fashion i mean they looked fabulous but why (laughs) well there was some thought that they may confuse the bullets oh oh i've heard of this actually like this is an old thing from the 90s no this is something that people would actually do like back when anthropologists were first writing about stuff. Well, you're right. So there is this old West African tradition where dressing as the opposite sex is kind of like a rite of passage, can be used with medicine men as a way of kind of obtaining mystical powers and to access sources of power far stronger than their own. And it's actually common in Liberian initiation rituals in the past more than in present day that a boy's passage to adulthood was symbolically represented by the donning of female garb so it was interesting because these were all like children soldiers Mm -hmm. and they were dressing in female garb as they were forced to fight and also hopped up on lots of drugs let's really bring this full circle but pulling on these like older west african traditions but definitely twisting and corrupting them. That is very interesting. But a discussion of modern day fake news scare factor would not mm. be complete without a discussion of ISIS. Well, we know they're scared of the transgender troops we're sending. Right. Like super soldiers. Which, I mean, they are super soldiers, but... How about we just start with them being regular soldiers? That'd be great. Let's <laughs> That'd be do great. that. That'd be great. Can we you just guys, start let's there? Do that. Now, I first stumbled across the idea of an ISIS super soldier when I was looking up like modern day tellings of the hashish assassin legend. Right. And so they're like, people say that this group has evolved into ISIS. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. But I mean, like Alex Jones says yeah, well, it. Of you course, know, right. You know, so people have taken the hashish assassin, decided it's ISIS. But there was like a, a more terrestrial... <laughs> believable thing that got mainstream news coverage not from the alex joneses of the world it's not the hashish but this was covered by the likes of the washington post but like for real (laughs) but like for real not the hashish but this and not according to real news right now no not no this is from forbes citing the wapo so they say that there's a magic pill that they give 
people fighting to make them, you know. Super soldiers. Super soldiers. So according to the Washington Post, this medication is a tiny, highly addictive pill that is, quote, fueling serious war and turning fighters into superhuman soldiers. And the Washington Times goes on to say that the drug quickly produces a euphoric intensity in users, allowing fighters to stay up for days and attack with reckless abandon. And they're quoting from a 2014 Reuters account of the story and a BBC documentary. And they create this impression that this drug, which is called Captagon, enables members of various armed groups in Syria to fight without fear, kill without hesitation or remorse, and resist brutal interrogation, literally laughing at the pain. And the Washington Post reporter, Peter Hawley, used a quote from the BBC documentary, Captagon, Syria's War Drug, in which a soldier says, There was no fear anymore after I took Captagon. But this is the same reporter who had earlier claimed a synthetic cathinone known as Flocka causes users to rip off their clothes and attack with superhuman strength. His thing about drugs. So the following quote from the BBC documentary appears in the reporting from both the Washington Post and the Washington Times. So the brigade leader came and told us that this pill gives you energy. Try it. So we took it the first time and we felt physically fit. And then there were 10 people in front of you. You could catch them and you could kill them. You're awake all the time and you don't have any problems. You don't even think about sleeping. You don't think to leave the checkpoint. It gives you great courage and power. If the leader told you to go break into the military barracks, I will break in with a brave heart and without feeling anything of fear at all. You're not even tired. The reports also featured excerpts from an interview with a drug control officer who was speaking about the effects of the drug on protesters. He said, we would beat them and they wouldn't feel pain. Many of them would laugh while we were dealing them heavy blows. We would leave prisoners for 48 hours without questioning them while the effects of the Captagon wore off. And then the interrogation would become easier. Interesting. So if they're taking something, it's not Captagon. So Captagon, the drug, is from the late 60s. It was prescribed for narcolepsy, depression, and ADHD. It was marketed as a mild version of a stimulant that would be less addictive. So the medication itself is called phenethylene, which is a combination of dextroamphetamine, which is your main ingredient in Adderall, and theophylline, which is the caffeine that's in chocolate. So... While Captagon was designed to be like a smart drug, as they were called then, you know, like a stimulant medication, it was supposed to have a lower side effect and abuse potential than Adderall because it was not as effective. Mm -hmm. So it was deemed an inferior amphetamine, found no need to continue using it, and it's no longer used in any form in the United States. So it's basically watered-down Adderall that you take with a Red Bull... (laughs) I have, I've actually taken an Adderall with a Red Bull and I've never once ripped off my clothes and killed anyone. Well, and I live with small so children. So, you know, the question and you have to throw out there, though, is maybe it's some other medicine they're just saying is Captagon. You know, maybe it's some black market D9 cocaine oxycodone amphetamine mixture. We'll never know without taking a sample to the lab. Right. Or it could be a placebo effect. Which would be fun. 
So Shavala Madlena, who directed Captagon's Serious War Drugs, says that reporters have misconstrued and misused her film, which argues that the Captagon trade fuels the conflict in Syria by providing money for rebel groups. Well, that makes more sense. Yeah. She says much of the reporting around Captagon has been hyperbolic and misleading. She says anyone linking Captagon directly to ISIS and using our film as evidence is misleading. And so is the hyperbole about the effects of the pills. It's not helpful or accurate to perpetuate scare stories or stories that exoticize drug users in other parts of the world. Now, in Forbes, he says, If reporters claimed that Adderall or Vyvanse was turning Syrian fighters into fearless, remorseless, relentless, pain-impervious killers, these reports would probably elicit more skepticism from editors and readers. But since Catagon nowadays seems exotic... Yeah, it sounds... What is this drug? It's safe to uncritically pass on hyperbolic secondhand stories about it, like Marco fucking Polo. Interesting. He says it would be like blaming U.S. gun violence on coffee. But since... Don't do that. No, don't take my coffee. (laughs) But since everything most readers know about drugs being taken in other parts of the world come from scary stories like these... They're passed off as accurate reporting. Although such yellow journalism is harder to get away with now that readers can easily find contrary information online, Americans are still disturbingly eager to believe the worst about other people's drugs. And life in general. Only other people's drugs. But I love that he's like, now that we have the internet, it's easier to like, you know, find real news. Google it. And don't look on real news right now. But no, I mean, the thing is, it's so funny because it's the very engine of our own defeat as far as, like, knowing facts. <laughs> well, there was another recent super soldier scare. I think I found this when I looked for ISIS super soldier. Oh, no, it was right here in the United States of America. No, I mean, like, I couldn't find any results for ISIS super soldier. It all came up the new boogeyman. The new boogeyman, the Antifa super soldiers, or Antifa. I think we're going to go with Antifa. It's more fun. The Fjord would like it better. So on Alex Jones' InfoWar website, a story with the headline, Civil War, alt-left plans anti-Trump riots in major cities on November 4th. Alt-left agitators are planning to stage mass riots in major cities, during which they hope to instigate a civil war that will lead to the regime change of the Trump administration. Now they cite... Their source, Andy Z, who is a leader of Refuse Fascism, the group, who posted this long diatribe on the Revolutionary Communist Party website that they say makes it clear that the events which leftists hope will attract millions are not planned to be just ordinary protests. So, is this group technically Antifa? Antifa's like a state of mind. <laughs> I kind of think of it, and I'm not sure I have the right concept. Like, is it like a co-opt? It's not a terrible analogy. <laughs> okay. It's like they share some similar ideas, similar techniques, and they hate fascists. Uh-huh. But then beyond that, it can just be kind of anything. Okay. And a dress code? A lot of times they were all black, and they'll cover their faces. And they usually are willing to, let's say... Go stand out with guns. Oh, or hit people back. Yeah, they're just like a little more radical. A lot of anarchist. Okay, nihilist one might say. One could say. Okay. Alex Jones said on his show that they were handing out AK-47s and shanks, planning a revolution. So they're very well funded. Apparently. 
Now, in September, previously to all of this starting, this has all happened last year, protesters showed up on an L.A. highway, and they had 12 signs with letters on it that said, November 4th, it begins. So, N-O-V for it begins. What begins? The purge. The, the purge. purge. Yes, the purge. What they were trying to say is, uh, this series of protests are going to begin. Okay. Now, when they, this group is aligned with dudes original say they're like a line but it's not like it's not people trying to warn it's not people on the right trying no, to warn no, okay no. so somewhere from the left it is from the left and they were trying to get the word out now they couldn't even get 12 people to get the signs together so they had eight people holding 12 signs they did not have any of Duffier's fabulous staging ability no and so this was picked up by the right and picked up by alex jones and you know, all of this kind of writing on it from these extreme left groups got all mished up into the civil war that is going to begin on November 4th. Cool. Now, another thing that got picked up oh. was this tweet by Crane T. Nelson and said, Can't wait for November 4th when millions of Antifa super soldiers will behead all white parents and small business owners in the town square. <laughs> It sounds ridiculous. And threats of violence are not generally funny. It's Crane from Ninja Turtles. The image says that the post was meant to mock the festering panic over an exceedingly fake civil war plot for which thousands of Fox News grandparents may, at this very moment, be boarding up their windows in panicked preparation. That that seems a very accurate and well constructed argument for false threats of violence. <laughs> no. Don't say that. So another Twitter user said, "We Antifa are going to explode the white USA race with Acme TNT crates until they are covered with soot and waving a white rag on a stick." And people saw that and they knew it was a joke. No. Okay. No. Another one, I like this one. A press release from the Anti-Fascist Action LLC Company Incorporated announced the group would execute all Trump voters and gun owners. Anyone with questions should direct them to their official Antifa media liaison named Mohammed Markstein. So what happened is some very clever trolls found the internet and realized that white people got nervous and were like, we should capitalize on that because that always makes shit interesting. Right, but the right, the extreme right took this way too seriously. They were the white people getting nervous in question. <laughs> well, the Gateway Pundit, a well-trafficked right-wing blog that has, by their count, 15 million visits a month, mm-hmm. reported the joke as a straightforward news story with the headline, Antifa leader, November 4th, millions of Antifa super soldiers will be had all white parents. And small business owners. Of course. So, the post was shared by more than 40,000 people on Facebook. There were thousands of comments in it is this like dispurging hate-filled like rant about people saying despite antifa's ultimate noble on-paper philosophies most of the people that congregate as antifa are larpers attempting to find some one thing to sexually interact with and the problem with this is the fact that bravado especially from some of their quote women parentheses god help them manifests in the form of physical violence as a way to show off most of these people have not left their dorm room or their parents' homes before. The shock of sunlight and the atmosphere messes with their minds. What if we stop teaching people to read? 
It's a wonderful idea. I really am not hating it. Just till we get the internet under control. So some some choice comments. Thanks for making your terroristic threats so unmistakable. (laughs) I hope this message is followed by the appropriate law enforcement authorities paying you a visit. Next. Proves a lethal response is justified. What? No, that escalated quickly. Stop it. Next. Lock and load. Next. Dear Antifa, I bought myself a nice concealed carry purse. My husband bought me something with which to fill it, and I've been practicing. Why'd your husband buy you something to put in there? Buy your own damn gun. Jesus, hashtag feminism. The John Birch Society put up two videos warning Americans to stay home and tell your children to do likewise. Like they know that they're getting the old people. One YouTuber said, honestly, I'm happy. Dude, we've been on the verge of the Great War for what seems like forever, and I'm just ready to get it going. Oh, that's just... Disturbing. You know where this is going. You know what's gonna re- who's going to report on this. Oh, God. Oh, no. What? Sean Hannity. Fox and Friends. It's worse. It's worse than Sean Hannity because Donald Trump's still awake. Oh, God. The Chiron says, Antifa apocalypse. Oh, my God. <laughs> Plan to overthrow a president. Oh, they're like, oh, they're trying to rile him. You guys, you guys, don't rile him. <laughs> They're going to wake the bear. They're going to wake that big orange bear. Now, of course, nothing came of the Civil War because we are still here. We are not recording from a bunker. Maybe you're not. But it was just a misunderstanding. (laughs) There were no Antifa super soldiers. I am amazed that Trump did not respond to this directly. Like, it feels really weird. Like, somebody. He called out Antifa. That's the other group in the Charlottesville stuff. I know. I mean, I know that, but that's before this happens. Oh, yeah. No, I'm just saying. I love that in some of the articles, they actually made the point of saying that Antifa did not have the capability or funding to breed super soldiers. I, yeah. Fair. Or really the organizational power or, you know, the long-term consistency. It seems like there would be a long turnaround if you're actually trying to breed them. Just saying. <laughs> but it's interesting because this shows how a narrative can be created. So fast. And a small little pocket can spread and spread and spread so fast in our current media state to where it can end up on Fox News getting coverage as an actual real possible threat. Now, Mark Finster, a law professor at the University of Florida, who researches conspiracy theories, argued that we shouldn't be dismissive as we once were about the potential dangers of baseless conspiracy theories like those currently spinning around Antifa protests, in part because of the degree to which they've risen into the more mainstream cultural conversation. Pizzagate. Exactly. November 4th will come and go, as it did, and most likely nothing will happen, will happen which it didn't, but... It will drive traffic online and in turn deepen a fear in some people that a civil war is really coming. Cons- of fear or hope. Yeah. The conspiracy theories that are based on racial superiority are much more dangerous and have the potential to inspire real violence. He mentions as other kind of ideas that are brought about. I think you know, directly referencing kind of the alt-right Nazis. Antifa's is a funny thing because it plays the perfect boogeyman it's this disorganized small number of people that noam chomsky describes as a minuscule fringe on the left but a major gift to the right but they're able to 
use this like actual group and turn them into a super soldier coming start civil war and they're gonna tell you when they do it i guess this is the first one that i have been able to look back on and see in a complete cycle that's happened like in the last two years there are so many theories that are not this fringy that like linger and like fester like the deep state stuff or whatever like there are so many of those but this one is just it's like predict all the people who predicted that the world would end and then like had to be there the day it didn't oh right everybody you know says well it was all of our preparedness that stopped this from oh, happening. Oh, word got out. That the right-wing militiamen were so prepared and ready to fight that they scared off the Antifa super soldiers, even though they announced when it was going to happen. I think that super soldiers are always a symptom. I think that the stories of super soldiers can always point you to what we've decided we should be afraid of now. It's really easy math if you look back at every conflict. But there's something about the speed at which these things take off. Especially now. This one in particular, like, it upsets me. Because it's hilarious. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's really amusing. And, like, they say, look how worked up all these people got. But it hits hard because of Charlottesville, I think. Like, it really was just a group of crazy fringe people, like, saying, let's all get together. And then people died. Or a person died. And it's this it's this morass. It's this horrible, confusing thing when you're in the middle of these two kind of invisible groups that are not on, in other countries or across a, an ocean. These are literally our neighbors. And it's confusing because it, when, on one hand, you want to be completely dismissive of it, and it's so ridiculous. The super soldiers thing is ridiculous. But that fear, that the fear is pointed in that direction is not. Like, the idea that they're actually going to behead everyone in the town square. Ridiculous. The idea that people believe it, that's terrifying. We've mobilized for Jade Helm. You know, there have been real militia groups gotten together and rounded up and occupying Oregon National Parks and everything else. And those super soldiers have always been the objects of supreme fear of the things that are bigger than ourselves. If you're going to fight an enemy bigger than yourself, you have to do something to push yourself beyond human capability. And I do think that there's something so revealing about what we're afraid of and what we believe that the other side, the enemy, is capable of. And so it's easy to laugh off the the super soldiers, the most recent super soldiers, as ridiculous. But the idea that to some people these are not just stories, that's real. That's not just a story. 